have. I got a story for you. Dave Graham is a Republican candidate for governor of Delaware. He's a CPA, been through family court and was not pleased with the experience, has run for governor several times, is considered a Republican rebel, has served in the military, is a Delaware native, and fun fact, his grandfather was a Kent County Sheriff back in 1920, as in pre Delaware State Police. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. AndrePsyche.com is that cute, quaint corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original merch you had no idea existed because AndrePsyche.com has been tucked away and hidden from your browser in the northwest part of the internet. Let me give you a little preview of the plethora of potential purchases available for your perusal when you partake in... I ran out of peas, sorry. When you go to AndrePsyche.com, <laughs> what are you going to find? We're talking about literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, podcasts, and best of all, any sort of custom gift that your soul desires. How? Well, all you would do is message Andre chat for a bit, and that man will create your vision. Tangible. How? That's the second one. Because he is a freelance creator extraordinaire. So go to AndrePsyche.com and see what speaks to you, because each and every item has a story behind it. Nothing is made. Everything is created on AndrePsyche.com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You Pod. Do you enjoy supporting local startups? Have you been asking yourself, how can I help make a difference but not spend any money? Do you possess the ability to click a specific section of screen on your smartphone? If you've answered yes to these questions, or at least yes to the very last one, please do the Getting to Know You Pod a favor. We need and appreciate your support. Take a moment right now, push the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, or whatever app you're listening to the podcast on. And while you're at it, if you can rate and review the pod, especially on Apple, it is so appreciated. Also, if you haven't already, friend and follow the Getting to Know You Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Just search us up. It's getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod. And finally, why are we hoping for your support, loyal listener? Because we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. So if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world. The podcast is downloaded in over 25 different countries and the majority of the states in America. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatevers, just message us. Our advertising rates are extremely reasonable and we would love to partner with you. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. 
getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. On today's show, we are getting to know Dave. Dave Graham is a Republican candidate running for governor of the great state of Delaware. Dave, thanks for coming on, supporting a local Delaware podcast, and letting everyone get to know you. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on, Sean. Yeah, we had um, some technical difficulties earlier. You were kind enough to reschedule so that we didn't have to be in a bind. And I, I love it. I love when people who make that commitment and say, hey, I'm going to give you some time. You were very thoughtful and considerate about making sure you could give that quality time, not that like distracted time. And again, just very appreciative. And I think it speaks to your character, man. Thank you very much. Yeah. So fun fact about you, which I came across in the article and that you had just said before we started recording, 20 years going after this governorship, 20 years chasing, man, that that's... That's some persistence. <laughs> That's some stick-to-itiveness. Well, uh, yeah, well, if you have to – part of it is because of uh, what's happened with the political party of, of Delaware. And uh, and I've been active in Delaware politics since 1976, the week oh after God. I got out of the U.S. Army and went to my first rep meeting. Uh, and it was held by my junior high school – history teacher she was a chairman peg brown of smyrna and they had as their guest at this small gathering in my rep district here in smyrna delaware uh the lieutenant governor of delaware who was a lewis businessman he owned a, a lumber yard and he was dressed in a herringbone jacket and little baggy pants and was smoking a pipe very relaxed and I looked at him, I go, oh, my goodness, anybody can do this. So I, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I became uh, very active in the uh, – well, I, I uh, went to, to um, Goldie Beacom College on the GI Bill, grew my hair long. They thought I was out of high school. My second year, I was elected student government president. And then when I graduated from Goldie Beacom in 1979 – after being there about three years, I was in the first graduating class with bachelor's degrees, and I became active in the Republican Party up in Newark, Delaware, where, where I lived, and was a delegate to the convention in 1982. Man, can I ask you, because I've had a couple other people who are running for governor. I am so interested, and I, I didn't get an answer, although I might not have asked everyone. How do you actually become one of these delegates that endorses or that casts a vote for the official endorsement of a party? You become active in one of 41 rep districts in the state of Delaware. And there are so few people that actually step up to the plate to become involved in politics. If you, if you're active in your local rep district, and and I, I worked on a Joe Petrilli campaign, who was a state rep in 1980, uh, you're invited to go. They, they're desperate to get people to make the commitment to go, and so I wanted to learn the business of politics. And the way you learn the business of politics is the way you learn anything else. You learn it by doing it. Yeah, and what does active actually mean? Like, are, are like five hours a week? Is there a specific time commitment? Are you showing up for fundraisers? No, my, my advice to to when I run into young college students that are really eager to be involved in, in politics, I say, 
uh, find a, a state rep campaign or a state senate campaign where you have a good candidate that's running against an incumbent because they are desperate for volunteers and they let you do everything. Oh. And yeah, and that's how I, I got the my big start in um, deep start in 1988 when I was. Uh, of course, I have the credential of being a CPA. I don't practice that anymore. But um, in 1988, I was the treasurer. It was um, a $60,000 state Senate race where we uh, ran. I supported a candidate <clears throat> from my hometown uh, in Dover and took out a longtime incumbent Democrat that everyone said couldn't be taken out. And he was defeated by 250 votes. Ooh. And uh, he, he had actually run for the U.S. Senate against Bill Roth back in the day wait that's the so, roth ira guy right that's what that's the roth ira bill roth is the yeah, yeah bill roth of the famous roth ira yes. yeah that okay. was his, he was on the finance committee in the u.s senate for years and years oh wow yeah so you're going up against i mean that that's you, going against a guy like that you would learn some things that i would think would make you definitely um, well well since we i love my stories and since we have time to tell stories i guess in this podcast that people like to interest them i love my political stories because that's the fun thing about being in politics is that you run into a lot of interesting people on both sides of the aisle and i have a great deal of respect for anyone that has the guts to participate in politics and I, i i do my best to treat them accordingly but we did in that 1988 state senate race against a long uh, an entrenched incumbent he, we did everything right he had a good campaign manager um you know ran a clean race with the idea that if he lost he'd hold it he'd be able to hold his head up and and do a two cycle and take him out next time ah. but what we did was and i didn't realize it until i looked back about a year later we had greeters at every polling place and we were in, you know, a blue jacket, nice pair of pants, white shirt, red tie, looked very patriotic. And we had the, the, the button on. It was John Still, State Senate. And I noticed afterwards, I was thinking, because 250 votes only means 126 people could have voted the other way. You would have lost the election. Mm. And what happened when people, I was greeting people, and I like, I like, doing greeting because I'm a gregarious guy, they really don't know the candidate very well. And all they did yeah. was they saw that name and they thought I was the candidate. And that was, <laughs> and, and that was occurring all over the district. That oh was the margin. God. That was the margin of greeters um, that took us over the top. You, and if you, you, all can, you can always point in a successful race or an unsuccessful one that's close and point to one thing that t- takes you over the top. And it, it's funny you mention that. And my daughter, and I think I've said this on maybe two or three pods, but it was um, it was kind of stark to me. So we're driving home from the beach, and um, we're passing all the political signs. And my daughter's in the backseat of the Jeep, and I'm like, oh, I've had that person on the podcast. Oh, I've had that person on the podcast. Oh, I've had that name on the podcast. And a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old girl was like, it must be so cool to actually get to know and listen to them talk because I bet not everyone gets to do that. And when she said that, I was like, man, this podcast thing, I think needs to be, it it needs to happen more because I think you're right. Like that's, that's kind of sad, but I believe so true where people can go and not really feel any sense of connection 
to the candidate. Maybe you see them on some sort of debate. Maybe you read an article or two about them. But do you really feel like you've heard them speak and get to know them? Um, God, that's awesome. That just door greeters could be not mistaken, but mistaken for a candidate well, and people would feel yeah, connected. Well, well, this was greeters at the poll on election day. Right. This And, and um, yeah, and they, uh, they uh, of course, back in Kent County, back in 1988, as a state rep said later on, the Democrats were so thick in Kent County, they occupied all the offices that you needed a bush hog to, to knock them down. <laughs> because, and what happened was once um, John Still was elected in 1988, three people in a row were, became, out of that campaign, became the Kent County chairman of the party. And they started running people on the two cycle philosophy is you, you, you run someone as a state for the state rep to your seat, you come close and, and what inevitably happens is the incumbent decides to go find another opportunity the next time because they're not likely to survive the onslaught because I love quotations and the quotation I like to use in politics is name, uh, money may be the mother's milk of money may be the mother's milk of politics, but name recognition is the coin of the realm. That's why incumbents win. Uh, yeah. They have name recognition. And that's the principle I've used over the last 20 years. Yeah, There's no better way to get name recognition than taking the beating at the polls every election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Just so people, and when I, they go to that voting booth, can actually remember, oh, Graham, I remember that guy. Kind of a thing. Right. Right. And there was not, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with me as a candidate. It just, it, it wasn't the right time. And because of the, the political ambitions of other people within the party, they would knock me aside or not want me because they had other plans for people to be in those positions. Mm. And you, and people have to realize you don't have to worry about the, the other party. The de- if you're a Republican, you don't have to worry about the Democratic Party. You have to worry about people in your own party. And I tell fellow politicians, find out if you want to run for office, you need to find out who has ambition to run for that office also because you might be getting in their way. And if you get in their way, they may may figure a way to take you out. And I ran into that over the last 20 years. Man, that's – um. so – and part of the article that you had sent, uh, 28 years of a Democratic stronghold, I believe might have been the quote. I might be a little off on that. Yeah, 20, 28 years sequentially elected Democrats since 1992. You would think that alone – I mean that's – divided by four is – is that seven? Seven straight right. elections? Right. Seven times? Yeah, seven? yeah, the current governor – and of course each of those governors served eight years. So there oh was three God. that – there's four, three that served eight years. That's 20, 24 years, and then our current governor's in his uh, first four-year term. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's. I mean, you would think there would be way more unity and vision for the opposing side, as far as well, the Republicans. That, that's what it was alluded to in the article. What's happened in Delaware is. At one time, the DuPont Company ran this state up until the early 90s when they fell on hard times because their business model failed. And they went from like 30,000, 40,000 employees today down to like 3,000. They have no footprint in Delaware. Back before 1990s, when I was first active in 1980 – the, the DuPont had, company had a big say in how Delaware government was run. They would loan their executives. At one time, back in 68, they actually t- took an executive and put him in office uh, because the current the, the governor wasn't functioning properly. 
um, and that went away. And what my observation is, is you, is you had um, political operatives, for the most part, lawyers and former former office holders that started working behind the scenes to manipulate the elections and the system of anointed candidates and throwaways. Can I ask, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when you say working behind the scenes to anoint, what are those... Is that getting in the ears of the delegates who are going to formally nominate? Is that in the way of fundraising in order to get people ads well, the, and posters? The, what, like, what, what is they, that? What they've effectively done is they've destroyed the two-party system in Delaware. For example, uh, I, I still have my CPA license as a credential. And I was about – back in 2010, I was sitting next – I went to the annual CPA meeting – um, and I'm sitting next to a CPA who had, and he said, I was a treasurer for the Republican party for 30 years. I just resigned. He said, I don't understand it. He said, when I first joined back in 1980, every election cycle, they would announce, we have these, these different seats available in the legislature and throughout the state. And if you're interested in running for office, come and talk to us. They don't, and he said they don't do that anymore. They don't run it like a political party. Oh wow! And they they took all the power away from the the rep district chairman and the county party chairman, and they vested it in the state executive committees. And the state executive committees, what's happened is they cut deals with the with the Democrats. And uh, uh, I'll give you a, a prime example of what I believe what my theory is. You remember the, the famous Mike Castle, Christine O'Donnell race you know, back in 2010. I, 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 I don't remember the details other than Chris. I, I've, to this day, someone says Christine O'Donnell and I immediately go, which? And I feel bad <laughs> about that. But like that was the big thing that I walked away from was – and I don't even remember – if it was slander or if she tried to like kind of avoid it and don't and didn't. Well, what, what happened was she, she had been created by the Republican party in 2006 because they had, they had put up a professor, a law professor from temple university to run for the U S Senate against Tom Carper in 2006. And the, and the grassroots didn't like it. And, you know, the nominating convention is in early May. The primary is in, in September and they did polling and found out that the endorsed candidate was not going to win his primary. And they had another gentleman, uh, Mike Protak, who was a former military person, was also running. And what they did was they put found Christine O'Donnell. She was a young, attractive woman uh, with, and had a platform. And they put her into the race as a write-in candidate. And she pulled enough votes away from Mike Protak that the endorsed candidate won the race. So they, what they did with that, and it was like 15,000 write-in votes. Oh, wow. So number one was they created her because she got the name recognition. And then in 2006, what's forgotten is she was the endorsed candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2008 when Joe Biden was running simultaneously as the best vice presidential nominee and for a repeat on his U.S. Senate seat, it's allowed under the law. She had no chance of, of, of winning that race, but she was the endorsed candidate. So she felt 
correctly and her supporters felt correctly, well, 2010 is coming up and um, they have to replace the law in Delaware is if the seat becomes vacant, as it did when Joe Biden was elected vice president, they put in a seat warmer to, with the understanding he would just finish out the two years and then we would have an election in 2010. So by rights, um, Christine O'Donnell was entitled to run for that. But they cut it. What they did was they took Mike Castle, who has been governor and congressman, and he resigned from the Congress. He decided not to run for Congress, and he ran for the U.S. Senate seat. And she took him out in a primary. Huge national news. I mean, I went to Dover where she met at the Elks Club, and every, it was a huge press train. Every big van was there. Every top reporter from every network was there in Dover that night when to witness her defeating. Uh, basically, she defeated the party boss, which Mike Castle was at the time. And uh, what did they do? The chairman of the Republican Party stated, Christine O'Donnell is not fit to be dog catcher. How and, do I not and remember the, and, that? And the, and, the, and, the, and the Republicans down in Washington are going, what is wrong with you, Delaware Republicans? How, She's a Republican. How do I not remember that? That seems like that would be a huge deal. Well, it was in the news. It was big news in Delaware. Wow. Oh my, and, no, um, and I'm, I'm not speaking about as, as far as like um, saying you're, you're telling un, untruths or anything. I'm just almost like I'm a little annoyed at my own ignorance, to be honest with you. Like that's that that's amazing to me. I, I, I didn't understand the power of the castle name with O'Donnell overtaking it. I remember it being a big deal, but I didn't understand the intricacies of it. Right. And that was a prime example, but there were other things that went on. And what's happened is why would they do people that? just get disgusted with the two party system and they go, why should we even participate if everything's being fixed behind closed doors? And even when you have a candidate, when it, I, I said it was a prime example of the two, when when they turned on their own nominee and both parties did it, I mean, the Republicans turned on her. The, the establishment Republicans turned on her. Of course, the Democrats joined in, and that's how Chris Coons was elected Senate. The Repu Everybody goes, it was a prime example of what I describe as we, Delaware is the first state to perfect a two-party communist government. <laughs> so, uh, and in essence, to, to boil it down or to restate what you've said – so basically, you believe that the Republican Party in Delaware does this because there are they are incentivized by the Democratic Party to do this. That there right, are deals they're, they're cutting point. they're cutting deals behind closed doors as to the winners and losers every election cycle, and they attempted uh, to do it this cycle. Can I ask what's the incentive for them ahead. to do that? The Republicans, what's the so they know they're going to lose or they know they're going to always be a minority. They're, they're, so they're going they're going. There's a great deal of power if you put up. And if you put up a throwaway candidate that you know can't win because they're not qualified and they can't get the votes, in Delaware, uh, the governor has a great deal of power. And if going into the election cycle, you can guarantee that governor is going to get reelected. You're talking about judgeships and appointments. Oh, that's what we're getting at. And can I yes. – and because you may be – politically the most inside knowledgeable person I've spoken to. Um, so I'm super excited because already I'm like, you can get a dude and you can conversate with a guy who's got 40 to 50 
it's 50 years, 50 44, years, 44, 44 years, 44 years of political information, man. This is, uh, I'm, I'm super geeked. And if I stutter, it's because of the excitement. Um, <laughs> so right. aside, aside from the judgeships, what other sorts of appointed offices are we talking about? Uh, everything, everything below the elected offices, you have the cabinet appointments, you have their deputies. And all the all the appointed officials are subject are, are appointed by the governor. So then these and they're and they're and they're at will and you know they're at will. They're not merit employees. They're at will employees that can be hired and fired at will. So and they're very wow. very well paid positions. They're over a hundred thousand dollars. And in Delaware, there's just not that many jobs. So getting yeah. a plump government job is 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 important. And I don't and of even course, know if your, I should. Your judgeships go along with that. Um, you know, good pensions, good pay. Yeah. Don't necessarily have to work that well, that hard. You know, and uh, it's it's just it's it's uh, it's become the Delaware way over the last thirty years, and people are pretty disgusted with it. So then again, and I'm just going to keep recapping because I'm worried that I'm misunderstanding something. Not that I'm, no, you know, I appreciate I appreciate not, that not explaining something I, I, because I'm very fluent in this, and sometimes yeah. I gloss over the the points that people need to understand. No, and I. I don't, I don't know if you are, man. I think you're breaking it down. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this, right? So there's a Republican within the party that goes against your incumbent or puts up a a, a candidate that will most likely lose in order to then afterwards leave the Republican Party for a government appointed a position by the governor that they indirectly helped get elected. Right. Right. Well, they don't. They don't even have to leave the party. I mean, we had in two thousand eight, we had um, a, a gentleman who um, um, Alan Levin, who was he had sold the Walgreens store for like his family for about a quarter of a million dollars, and he had been active in politics. He had worked for Bill Roth. He was a lawyer, and he was the anointed one to run for governor. And they had the Lincoln Day dinner, which is traditionally in February of, of 2008. They had it in January. And then the day after, he announced, I'm not running for governor and left the Republicans flat-footed. And, and what happened was Jack Markell, the treasurer, ran in the primary, was elected governor, and turned around and hired the guy to run the, the Economic Development Authority. And that was wow. – it's, it's public knowledge that in 2008, 3,500 Republicans changed their registration in order to come out in the primary and vote for Jack Markell. And Jack only won that primary about, about, by about 1,400 votes. Those were Republican votes. Wow. And you, all, you, you, you asked what was that motivation for doing that. Well, that was because – if if Jack Markell was the governor, a certain certain people would be appointed to judgeships, and if if John Carney, John Carney, the current governor, lost that primary in two thousand eight. Oh, yeah, I remember if, that. Well, yeah, researched and, and it. If, I don't remember. And if, had he, to if he had been elected, <laughs> others would have be appointed to judgeships. Wow, what an odd, and I don't even know if odd's the right way. It's just blowing my mind. The um, it, the pyramid scheme ish. 
the, the chess moves that you have to align yourself. So then if you're initially going for it, then someone gets in your ear that you have no chance to be governor, but Hey man, we can kind of get you this really nice position. If you just saddle up with, Blank. well, it's not, it's not necessarily the, 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 the guy that's, that's anointed to run as a, the runaway. It's the, the, the party leadership, some of the leadership in the party might have cut a deal to, to put to make sure there is a throwaway ballot of candidates in this year. And what was the name of the gentleman who sold the Walgreens? It was Alan Levin. Alan Levin. So that, that's what I was saying about Alan, I guess, speculating about Alan Levin. So then yeah, did he, Alan Levin kind of not feel he had a chance or did out Al, was Alan Levin convinced that the better opportunity? I think I, I think no. I, the impression, and I'm going. I'm I'm yeah right. It kind of I'm saying what uh, what the impression was of other people. It was just a cover to number to to um, block anybody else from running for governor. Oh then. wow! And he was allied with with um, Jack Markell. That so doesn't make sense to me. Am I too much of a competitor where I'm like, dude, if I'm a Republican, I just want to beat the hell out of a Democrat. If I'm the Democrat, I want to beat the hell out of a Republican. Like whatever yeah. the opposition is, I want to beat you. I don't – and I understand compromise. I understand when you get elected, you need to work together. I get that. But competitively, when there's numbers involved, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around that mindset, that, 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 that backdoor, backroom politics. Yeah, the, the – what because it, it's – the – Anointing of candidates occurs by the 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 uh, the executive the, the state executive committee. The 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 nominee it's reversed from what it was over thirty years ago, where you would find someone good that you thought should run, you know, for governor or senator or something, and the support would come from the bottom of the party, the grassroots, saying, right. "Yes, we're going to support that person." Instead of that. It's, uh, the exact opposite. Behind clues, they close doors. They go, okay, this is the guy we're going to run, and um, and we know we can't win, but that's okay because we've got a deal going on that uh, we're going to let the, the Democrat get elected. And then the Great Democrat deal. would look good because they're having a diverse cabinet, deputies, ju- judgeships by appointing sure. Republicans, which they can then sure. claim or whatever. But in truth, it's those backdoor deals. It's all, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all. Golly day. And, and so what happens is you have, you don't, you don't have a two party system in Delaware anymore. Man. And I call it the city of Delaware because like actually <laughs> Delaware is a geographically large city with less than a million people and everybody knows each other. That's why retail politics prevails here. And, uh, you know, the, there's a the they try to give the impression there's a two party system in Delaware, but there's not. Well, the impression I have as a guy who moved to Sussex County when he was 11, I'm 39 now, is it's all Wilmington. Wilmington dictates every elected position, unless it's super local, within Delaware. Well. Wilmington is overstated at this point because the really? population of Wilmington is only 80,000 people, and yet the population of Newcastle County is over 600,000. So you're talking about you know, a little bit of maybe 12% of the Newcastle County vote comes out of Wilmington. Gotcha. But what you have is um, because of 
the population, over half of it is in the northern county, all they have to do, well, for example, the 2018 race, when you look at the stats. Quarter million, right? Every, right. Well, there's a there's a, about 200,000 in Sussex County, maybe 150, 175 in Kent, and then another 600,000 in Newcastle County. If you look at the stats for 2018, and we're getting back to my strategy for, for um, first of all, I have to focus one step at a time. I have to win the primary come September 15th in order to be on the ballot. But if you looked at the history of, of the 2018 race, Every statewide Republican running for office won the two, both of the two lower counties, with the exception of the attorney general candidate who had been a Democrat and was more liberal than the Democrat who won the race. And so that what that tells you is you have to have a candidate running this year for governor who can bring Newcastle County close to break even. So if you can and you'll, get and you'll, and you'll win and you'll win the you'll win the race. About how many votes out of that six hundred k are actually cast in Newcastle? So a six hundred thousand population is half of that voting. I wouldn't say it's that much now. Oh wow! And so you have to have you have to have a candidate. And let's get back to the governor's race. And another time we can talk about the history. But you got a flavor for why we are in this position. Yeah, we are this no, year. Great, dude, great After breakdown. 20, Thank you. Twenty years is um, you have to have a candidate. Well, I use, I use acronyms. You know, you got you to gotta have a firm hand on everything. You got to have PALM, and the PALM is an acronym for you have to have political experience and understand the business of politics. A, that's P. A, you have to have analytical ability. You have to be able to look at things and analyze what's going on in the state. L, you have to have leadership ability. That means to create order out of chaos. Mm. You have to have management ability. Once you get to be governor, you know how to attract and keep good people to run the state of Delaware. Very much so. And S, the S of the Palms is statewide name recognition. And I'm the only candidate that has that because I've – worked in all three counties in, in high-profile positions. I've lived in two of the counties, and I've vacationed in the third. So, and one thing I, I tell people is, in a statewide race, the first time out, if you're not a native son or a native daughter of the city of Delaware, you don't have the connections required in order to be elected. Because, uh, for example, uh, with me, people go, oh, uh, you know, the grand family and our grand family go back to the Revolutionary War. I went to vacation Bible school with Dave Graham. I went to Kenton Elementary with Dave Graham. Oh. I went to element junior high. I went to high school. I was in the National Guard with Dave Graham. Oh, I was in the Army with him over in Germany. I went to Goldie Beacon when he was the president of the student government. I, I work with him at the Carville office building up in Wilmington. I'm in, uh, I'm, I'm in the uh, – the, uh, I'm a life member of the American Legion. I'm in the post up the Claymont. My son's the American Revolution is up in Wilmington. Newcastle County is my adopted county because I've spent almost all my career up there. I worked for the biggest CPA firm in Wilmington after college and Gunnup and Company. And so, I, you know, a lot of people know me. 
And that gets and that's to the that, connection. Yeah, right. That gets to that. So if is is your goal analytically speaking with Palms, are, are you hoping for a hundred thousand Newcastle County votes? Hundred and fifty? Is that too ambitious? Or no, is I there don't think number? it's too. I don't think. And this year, this year is going. What I I believe is going to be a red year in Delaware. Delaware is always out of sync with the rest of the country because we're not a state. We're the city of Delaware, <laughs> and and it is. It, it is. We're never. Dude, we're never it's, not in sync with the rest of the country. No, I, I just and, love the city of Delaware analogy because the more I travel as a like if I, I like I went to Nashville. And I was amazed at how long it took to get from one end of Nashville to another. And I'm like, how does this take this long if you go to a city or if you go to New York City? Lord help you, you want to go one side to the other, right? Of just maybe the island of Manhattan. So like, it's funny that you say it, but it's so true that if you look at Delaware, it absolutely could be a city. That's why I keep giggling. I'm sorry to interrupt. But like, it's a no, great- no, it's, it, it, no, it's, it's very accurate. And, yeah. uh, and uh, you have to be an interesting candidate too when you speak and uh, and, and people go- that's right. That I hadn't thought of it that no, way. Yeah, exactly. But it's, but it's true. It's true. Yeah, it is. And uh, there's another. Uh, there was a, a um, there was a, a gentleman named Kiel Boggs. In fact, he was the one who was a congressman, then a governor, and then he was a U.S. senator. Kiel Boggs was the one that Joe Biden defeated in 1972 to become a U.S. senator. And uh, Kiel Boggs. I, I've, I've been around. I've, I've known a lot of these people over the years. In 44 years, I've met them personally, and they knew me. And he said, in order for a Republican to get elected in a statewide race, the Democrats have to like you. Makes sense. And um, and I mean, the Democrats have been watching me getting beat up by my own party for 20 years. <laughs> they so- go. What do you do? And, what do you do, or what do you bring that they would like about you? Well, I believe I was told I was told back in January of two thousand two. Even though they talked about me stepping up to the plate and running, that they wouldn't do it because I was too honest. Huh. I, I have the credential of being a CPA. CPAs are hardwired. For honesty and integrity. Bottom line, all about that bottom line. That's that's it. So I I, I say, you know, po- politicians are accused of being crooked all the time, but if you really want to ruin one who has ambition to run for a higher office, accuse him of being honest, and none of them want anything to do with him. You know? But when I hear so, and and th- this is going to be extremely stereotypical, and I'm hoping that you can. What meld it, cut it away, make it not so. When I hear Democrat, I hear government spending, and I think over like like it's just too much money. Like like we're trying to hide money, we're trying to put money in places, we're trying to pork fill things, and it's probably both parties, but stereotypical Democratic. So if then you go with an honesty of a CPA, it's hard for me to believe that Dems who are into uh, stereotypically again spending overtaxing, why would they want someone who's a penny pincher? Well, the grassroots of, um, of the Democrat Party are pretty disgusted with what's happening at the top of their party. Oh, really? The, oh, sure, sure. Because in, in Southern Delaware, in Southern Delaware, until 
within the last 30 years, the two southern counties of Delaware were Democrat. You had to be a Democrat going back to the Civil War time because the, the two southern counties of Delaware are the two northernmost counties of the old Confederacy. They right. were slave owning. They were plantations. And what happened was since you could not get elected as a Republican in downstate Delaware, a businessman who really – was conservative in their thoughts, was a Democrat, but they were the old-time conservative Democrats that didn't believe in big government, didn't believe in spending, and they were, in fact, more conservative than any California Republican. Hmm. And they, they, But that generation, you know, that is still around. They're still around. And the downstate Democrats, the grassroots of the Democrat Party in downstate Delaware – are not happy with this Nancy Pelosi philosophy of you do what we tell you to do, but we're not going to send you money to win your races. That's what's happening in Delaware. Uh, so it's not so much a philosophical difference. It's more about the funding. Right. Well, one thing, I, uh, one of my plat key planks in, in my platform running for governor is that Delaware is every at for, at last count, 45, 46 other states have inspector generals. Delaware does not. Every federal agency has an inspector general. And uh, I was in the, the Army when, as a young man when I was 20, and you had inspector generals, and they could come in and look at how the operations were being done in the, in the units according to the standard procedure, and they turned it upside down. If you had an inspector general in Delaware and people knew that they had the authority to come in and look at the contracts and, and the relationships and everything else like that, first of all, they would think twice before they did it. Yeah, and second nice. of all, when you did have a problem, you had an inspector general that had the authority, independent of the governor, to go in and look at that. And, uh, and until we put that inspector general in place in the state of Delaware, Delaware is going to continue to have the reputation as, as being among the most corrupt state in the United States of America. Who has the uh, – does the governor appoint that or is that a federal mandate that has there, to there, say? I, I wrote a three-page uh, – I co-wrote a three-page – a three-part three, three article that was printed in the Delaware State News back in 2015. And there's different ways of doing it. Um, it can be elected. It can be appointed. So it depends on how much control or lack of control you want to have. And there's actually a, there's actually an organization in Washington D.C. that you can consult with and find out which is the best for you. But as governor, if I'm elected governor, it's going to be it's going to be a hard pull to get um, enough pe enough people to agree in the state legislature that say. they want to move forward. And it's going to take a public outcry that th we need to do this. And so then legislation would have to pass a law that would right, say right, God, okay. right. And, and you're going to need – you have to elect a governor that's willing to stomp on some toes and lock some heels and maybe hurt some feelings and you know from the bully pulpit to get it done. And, uh, and it, uh, it's – go ahead. I know. No, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it almost reminds me of – for lack of a better analogy, um, I was speaking today with another person about the impact of a two-parent home and just having a father in it. And again, to go completely stereotypical, kids' rooms are going to be messy unless they know that I'm a check on it if I told you to clean it. 
And if you have that stereotypical dad, that's like, I'm sorry, I told you to clean your room, clean your room. And I'm going to hold you accountable. Behaviors typically are adapted, adjusted <laughs> to accountability. And that's almost a militaristic thing as well. I, I served National Guard. I only served nine years. I never was deployed, but I did go to basic. I did go to AIT. And if we knew there was going to be inspection about blank, we were damn sure that that stuff was on point. <laughs> if we knew that it was just kind of lip service, eh, do we really worry about it? And it's interesting that a Republican is looking for more government control, but it's not for the people. It's more like government accountability for the government. So I guess it's not like odd that a Republican would want it. Cause it, if you think Republican, you think like less government, but in this case, it's like government oversight, it's accountability, which almost goes to your point of, if I know I have that threat, I better make sure my stuff is right. Correct. And it gets to the core of, of, of the Republican philosophy of, of uh, a cost-efficient government, and you can't have a cost-efficient government if you have corruption. Mm -hmm. And and when you have the cost-benefit of, of what it costs you to have an inspector general office funded compared with how much money they save from, from avoiding having tax dollars wasted, it's revenue positive. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, um, I also, I'm a school teacher and I've heard many times about, um, contracts. There's different, there's legislation that talks about school districts having to put, um, certain dollar amounts up for bid, certain dollar amounts don't have to be bid out. And you hear all the time about connections where contracts get given to certain people. And you're like, wait, did you even bring that? D did you bring that to the surface so that we could analyze it so that people could see, or was it? Was it just awarded to a quote unquote good old boy system of friends? And yeah, and, and I, I wrote a letter when that issue came up about four or five years ago, and I, I pointed out that these school districts don't have internal auditors. Yeah, you know, you don't they they don't find it out until the you know the horse is out of the barn and yeah, the money's so, gone. Yeah, exactly. When is, when is if they had an internal auditor that went around and checked these transactions as they occurred? you would prevent that from, from, uh, from occurring. Yeah. And then I just took that thought process to a larger scale and I can't imagine what happens on a state level. Like I'm just looking at whatever, like a road, like route one construction. You're just wondering like, is it, is it all accounted for? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I'm looking at down here in Sussex route 24. And now my mind is spinning being like, yeah. was that out to bid? Is this the cheapest way to do yeah. it? Or is this well, the most it, efficient? You know, when, and, you, when you step back and look at it, the city of Delaware should be the most well-run prosperous state in the United States of America, but it's not because it's still being run on the old, 20th century political model. Why should it be the most prosperous? I would think Rhode Island because of proximity to New York. <laughs> no, I, if, it, if it, I spent 30 years in private industry and I went into state government uh, back in two, way back in 2003 as a merit employee, mid-level, because there's no better education for a governor than going into the state government as a mid-level and looking around. And they knew why I was there because within six months of me me uh, becoming a merit employee, I was running for governor mm. as, as a merit employee. And there is no bottom line mentality in state government. That's pretty true. I and feel, I feel I, that's pretty true. 
And just because you're a monopoly doesn't mean you cannot use sound business principles. And with a and and the the big overview, I, I believe we have to have a paradigm shift in this country, and we have to start putting people with political experience. You have to have political experience. You have to understand the business of politics, but people with a background of a business management degree that understand and are fluent in what happens when you, it's not just about money. It's how you treat people. You know, your, your, your employees are your most valuable asset. That's, they don't regard the merit employees of Delaware as their most valuable asset. Can I ask what it, I, I don't know what a merit employee is. What is that? Well, well, you were in the army. The, basically, the Delaware government's like just like the army. You got your enlisted; those are the merit employees. You've got your appointed uh, officials; those are the officers. And then you've got you know doctors and psychologists and so on. Those are your warrant officers. That's exactly what it is. Okay. But in Delaware, you, what you have is you have a lot of officers that. They're there because of political patronage that are working for a commanding general, the governor, who's in over his head because he's been anointed and appointed anything. And and the enlisted people know more about running the organization than the officers. Yeah, that was always bad. Lord, Lord help the little lieutenant who was in charge of the platoon and the first sergeant knew more. And he's like the lieutenant's just trying to get in a quote unquote pissing contest or trying to make something happen and he's not listening to the enlisted that um especially if they were inept that never worked out well <laughs> well, well, I, well I, eisenhower stated it correctly the run the army's run by the sergeants yeah yeah oh 100 i mean I, that's one of the biggest fallacies leaders can 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 get it's um and man there was a really good quote i heard the other day it was like wars are won with the boots on the ground or something so make decisions listening to the boots on the ground and that right. wasn't it but it's something along those lines of if you get removed from who is enacting your actions if you don't listen to those people enacting the actions it's not going to happen it, it's not going to be the, smooth and the same thing the same thing applies in business right yeah in the in the state of Delaware you have these appointed officials and they're of the opinion they they some i've i've met some very good ones that are appointed officials but some of them are there because of political patronage and if they want to make a change they don't ask they don't go down to the merit employees that are doing the work and saying yeah. we have this problem and we think if we did this it would fix it. What do you think? No, yeah. they just come out with a grand pronouncement. And of course they lose the support of the merit employees because yeah. it, it, things get worse. Things get worse. And you've had, you know, 28 years, there, there need, you know, Delaware's uh, needs a house cleaning on November 3rd. And then it starts with the governor's office. And I really like, and I've spoken to a lot of people, not many who have career in politics, but who have had careers elsewhere. Like uh, the stereotypical business person, I'm the outsider. I can bring change. And in my head, I've always thought, do you know how? Because politics on its own is its own system, is its own business. And if you don't understand how it works, you you can have the greatest ideas, but if you can't put them into practice, they're kind of useless. Yeah, and conceiving, of, conceiving of something is easy. Executing is what's the tough part. 100%. And, in, and I was in business and I was a, a I was a, a key employee in a business down in Sussex County with 650 employees, half as many again as subcontractors. I was a key man there. 
And you had authority because I could fire people. I, I wrote the paychecks. I handled the benefits. You don't have that in politics. You don't, you can't, you don't have any yeah. power to fire anybody, but you, the power you have, and this is the business of politics, the business of politics, you're, 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 and, and I think I need to interject here my own personal um, quotation or personal definition of what politics is. Politics is in everything. It's in churches. It's in homeowners associations. It's in prior companies. It's in businesses. Politics is how people act and interact in order to exercise power. And in the, in the business of governmental politics, you, you have power based on the perception of other people in, the, in, the, in government that you have power. And you, you have power by – you get a lot of power in politics by helping people. You know, um, if you help people get elected, they owe you forever. Right. That's power. Um, if, if you see someone that's running for office for the first time and you send, you send some help to them, that's power. If you see someone starting out and nobody's supporting them and you go buy 100 signs for them, that's power. And, and, and in the business of politics, the mistake people make is thinking that you get elected based on your resume. And that is far from the truth. And that will, I love that breakdown, by the way, that's, and it's so applicable. If anybody's ever worked in any sort of, even a restaurant, there are politics to getting a better section in a restaurant. Like you're, you're so right about that. Um, but that was going to my point with you. It seems like, and again, I know nothing of you other than my Googles. And this is our first conversation. You get kind of both of those worlds. You have a great depth of knowledge of the politics, but you also have some real world business experience to bring and interactions with a bunch of different Delawareans to bring to office to be like, dude, this is what needs to happen. And that, that seems well, so uh, rare to have those well, both worlds. To be a successful to be a successful governor, you have to surround yourself with people that in all likelihood might be smarter than you are. <laughs> when, yeah. But they they have to accept the, the fact that you're serious about being a governor and, and fixing the problems. Right. And you have to uh, – that's the problem that, that the governors have had the last 20 years. Who, will want, who would want to work for them? Why not? So if you it's end 100, up, if so it's you end, you end a up with people that that can't get a job anywhere else, but because they, they they're connected politically, they get appointed these positions. Oh. And uh, so if if and you're right with my with the credentials that I have and the reputation that I have, I mean, I, I have great people that are working that have come out of the woodwork. Uh, some of them I known for years and have watched me, and they've come and they go. I'll help you do this. I'll help you do that. You can run a governor's campaign on volunteers if you have high quality people. And, and a volunteer in a campaign is worth three paid staffers and probably you couldn't get because they're using their brain. Huh. And I was uh, – I've, I've always wondered when a governor is elected, is there a certain number of 
people that they typically bring with them for all these positions. Like I've got to make sure I know an education person. I've got to make sure I know a transportation person. I've got to know, make sure I know a DENREC person. I've got to make sure I know a blank. Is there a preordained number that you got to come through the door with? Well, we're probably going into the next era of how we're running government in the United States and state governments is because if you recall from history, Back before Abraham Lincoln, it was a spoil system. When when the president got elected, they just cleaned everybody out and brought in all new people because it was not technically difficult to do those jobs. And then they came up with the federal system and things became, you know, the federal workers. And, and they stay in place even though the politicians change over the years. Okay. But for Delaware, if I'm elected governor – I have faced a very difficult situation in that if I don't handle it right, I won't be able to accomplish what my goals are. So I'm not looking, if I'm elected governor, to cleaning house. You can't do that because the people there and, – and what I'm saying is come November 3rd, I would hope that John Carney and I – and I've known him for since I, I've known him personally since 2004 when I briefly was a candidate for a term, for a lieutenant governor that was going to run against him, and met him for the first time. And it's and, you know it's a business of politics. It's not personal. And frankly, I believe John Carney would be delighted to be relieved of command. He's not having a good time. Really? He's aged about 10 years, he? and he's got all these people that are not performing well that he inherited from the Markell administration. And in defense of John Carney, there was such bad blood between John Carney and Jack Markell in January of 2017 after John Carney was elected governor. Jack Markell just walked out. He offered no transition at all to John Carney. And that's bad. Serious? I did not know that. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, you, know, you talk to people when you find out. Of course, I'm up there in the Carbell building, so I know things, <laughs> and um, and and people tell me things, and uh, so I would. Um, my goal would be that if I'm elected on November third, between November third and January twentieth, when I would be sworn into office, governor that I'd be able to meet with John Carney and say, and say, where are your problem areas in government? Who are your good people? Who are your bad mm. people? Are, like, are some of them salvageable or what? I, I, I hesitate to put anybody on the street because they have families, they have mortgages, they have right. car payments. So I would look in the first six months to uh, evaluate the appointed officials and see – which ones are, are, are performing. And I, I would, um, one thing I'd like to see is, is I like to see them have weekly meetings and, and conduct minutes about what they're doing in their organizations. And so, you know, what's going on. They don't do that anymore. It went away. We, and again, let me just clarify. So my simple self can understand this complex problem. So you mm-hmm. have cabinet deputies, People in charge of agencies and anyone who feels a governor should know everything about everything, I don't think understands what a leader does. And I really liked how you said you have to have smarter people because you do. You, if, if you're elected governor, you can't know everything about every agency. You got to have the smartest person, ideally, the smartest person for education, leading education. And then 
transferring that information to you. Transportation, yeah, you, you, right? It's, uh, it's as in business, you delegate responsibility right? and authority and authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, I'm sorry, go and, ahead. Uh, my, my, my objection to the Democrats is that in the state of Delaware – is they want to micromanage everything. How? For example, for example, oh my God. You know, what I've seen in the education system and the grievance of the teachers is they don't get to teach anymore. They're all caught up in all these requirements of reporting and, and having meetings and so on. Um, I, you, you hire you hire well-educated, dedicated people to hire to teach their your children, and then you they bog them down with all these requirements, well, you and treat- they, they can't be a teacher. You treat them like they're not professionals. And again, so I, I, I am a teacher. I have actually um, a couple um, graduate degrees and uh, of course have the prerequisite bachelors. And it is odd to me that teaching is a profession. I don't know if doctors or lawyers get told how to do their job as much as teachers are told and held accountable for making what I would call professional decisions that you've spent many years studying executing and reflecting on. And that is always been an oddity to me with micromanaging. But but before we get into education, I, I just want to make sure about this weekly meetings thing. I That blows my mind that you could have department people come, like they're not coming together, talking about what's going on and then sending those minutes up for review of the government or, or, or someone. Or, or the system they have is they just get posted on their, their internal website it's not sub, it's not available for the public to view, but oh. anyone else within the government can look and see. Okay, what what are the? And you never have a meeting on Tuesday on Monday. You always have a meeting on Tuesday to give people a break. But on Tuesday, the key leaders in that organization in that division sit down and they go through. I I, I did this in private industry. This company I worked for down in Sussex County, we had one six hundred and fifty employees. And all the super, the supervisory levels, and we set we had a meeting on Tuesday morning. It started at eight o'clock, and usually we were done by nine o'clock. And we just went. We had all the key people of all the departments there, and we just went around the table. And if there was a problem, and went the way we were running that organization, because we were we were producing twenty houses a week on a forty hour work week. And you solve the problems right there in the meeting, or or the or the owner of it would say, "Okay, you work with that one and get that done, and let me know if you can't get it done." I had the most powerful position, by the way, because I bought the donuts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tip. There's a tip well, right I mean, there. Uh, yeah, everybody had to go through me to get their donut of choice. But I talk about know, politics. I was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was it was politics, and uh, but I, you know, the, the the owner of the company couldn't fire anybody. I, I was the ox man for things, and and uh, you know I signed paychecks and payroll, and and I walked through the plant, and we knew everybody. Um, but the key was you treated your employees well. Okay, so then just so going back to the weekly meetings, it's maybe not that they are not happening; it's that those minutes are not out there for public review, where the public not the, can... the, not, not for public review for the governor to look at. Oh man. For the, Oh my God! I want I want to be able to any of these divisions and any of these cabinet departments. I want to be able to to call up on my computer and look and say, "Okay, what did you talk about?" There yeah. At your meeting, what the problems are you dealing with? And it, and I wouldn't sign. I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't show up unannounced in my first six months to a year at any of these meetings. You get people a chance to adjust. But after six months to a year, I'll just say at any time I can show up at your meetings and listen to what you're talking about. It's accountability yeah. that the governor has a personal interest in what is going on. And not you're not looking to punish anyone. You're looking to see as if, Governor, do I need to – do, do they need more resources? Do right. we need to make some changes in management? It, it's it's hands on. It, you're not micromanaging, but you're hands on walking management by walking around the Lee Iacocca built yeah. concept. Yeah, very How, valuable. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's I, I don't know that to me. Maybe that's a militaristic way, but you need boots on the ground to understand what's going on. You need something again as a teacher, and maybe we can segue this back into education. There is not, it's very frustrating if decisions are made for you as a teacher by people who you very rarely, if ever, see in your classroom, even somewhat regularly. And you've not been consulted. And you're sitting there as a teacher wondering, like, how was this made? Do you know what I'm dealing with? Do you know my day to day operational? issues <laughs> can you can can you consult me and involve me and empower me in this and it is it's frustrating when that happens so i i love how you're saying it's not to like ask someone it's to figure out hey i just want a perspective so when i have to make a decision as a governor i've been there and i kind of understand the gist of what's going on i think that's great yeah you have to have the people that are working there have to have faith and believe that there's a sincere interest in making their job easier right? and taking uh, – and everyone that works for the state of Delaware, you should love going to work in the morning. You shouldn't have a hostile work environment. And it's a it's a problem in state in state government where, with hostile work environments. And yeah, especially at DMV. No, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, gotten uh, you know, a real-life example sound. talking about education, and, and I, I think education – the governor is going to have to. The, if I'm elected governor, I'm going to pay extra attention to to education and get back to some of the basics of hiring good people and letting them do their good job and, and stop micromanaging. But a real life incident I had was about 25 years ago. I had an issue um, I wanted addressed by the school board, and I called my school board member and said, "This is what I want to talk about." So I went to the meeting, but you had to listen to the other business that was going on, right. and and the assistant. Uh, superintendent of the schools was going through a problem they had and he said we have to go up to the state level and the state board to get this approved and I'm th- I couldn't I have a mouth on me and I said you mean to tell me for something simple as that you've got to get approval up the line you can't make that decision and they said no we, we, got, we have to have everything approved at the state level and it's ridiculous do you remember what it was by chance, I don't. Re- I, I know don't it was a while what ago. It was. it was just something that was so inconsequential, you know. It, you, and and that's why I believe that's why you have to have all the top heavy um, management structure in these school districts now. Uh, you know, I've heard that speaking to different candidates that like um, the administrative costs in Delaware education budgeting is over the top. And I'm wondering if that's part of, and I haven't dove into the numbers at all, but I'm wondering if that's part of it, like this chain of command where you just want, like a better term, more boots on the ground, more teachers in the classrooms versus people yeah, and, having to like and, say, and, okay. And too much, too much wake, unnecessary make work. What do you mean make work? 
Well, the decisions that should you should push decision making down to the lowest level possible and not have to run it all the way up to the top and all the way back down again and document everything that's going on. I, I, I guess my perspective is I, I went to Kenton Elementary School. It's the buildings there. They, they didn't continue to use it, but it was a three room school with six grades. There were two grades in each room, about 15 students in each grade, 90 students total. The first grade teacher was also the principal and her sister you know, ran the little kitchenette for the, the hot meals and it had boys had a boys' room and a girls' room small. But those teachers taught and they had it personally they, they they knew what was going on with all their students. They didn't have all this paperwork requirement. Man, it's a lot. I'll tell you, man, it's it, it, it it's a lot for me. And we're the not teachers and, and, and the bottom line is we're not getting results from it. Our 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 are students testing better than they did before? Uh, parent, I, I don't know better, but most people say we're top five for per capita spent on kids and near the bottom of standardized test results. So that tells me there's something wrong with what nationally, we're doing. And we need to take a look at it, redoing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are you a fan of common core. So then one of the arguments for education would be, and I've heard this spoken by, again, different people that I've spoken with, Delaware is so small. Can we combine, can we go like countywide districts at, you know, oh, oh, instead so, of- I am so, I am so viscerally opposed to that because- oh, tell I, me. I, 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 absolutely not. I mean, if you, I, I have really good school teachers in, uh, in Smyrna High School, you know, civics teachers and so on back in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, one of the communist principles is they take over your education system and they dictate what's being taught to your students. Ah. And, and, um, and once you combine school districts, you lose control over what's going on in those districts because you can no longer go to a school board meeting and have, have something fixed. That's a great because point. Yeah, it's a, it's a basic Republican concept. You know, you don't you, you you don't create these bureaucracies, and that's what's happened in Delaware. You have bureaucracies in the education system. Um, so and, and the and the bureaucracies exist for their own benefit, not for the benefit of the students. Right. So then, would you go? Um, would you remain with Common Core standards? Did I hit you with a gotcha? And I didn't mean to hit you with a gotcha. I'm not trying to be that guy. No, but I, so, I, 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 and, and I, if, 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 if what, if com, you know, what's they're doing with common core now, correct? Yes. Is not getting the results that you, they promised we were getting. Um, so again, you don't know if it's the standard, if it's the assessment, if it's the manner in which assessments are being assessed <laughs> you don't like there, there's so I, I many guess, variables i, I guess I, I think it gets back to teachers are so demoralized by all the bureaucracy that's imposed upon them and they don't really get to teach and do what they thought they were going to get to do when they aspired to be a teacher i think it, it, it i think the, the the teachers in the state and the public education system are just demoralized because i've 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 talked to some of them and they said i just want to do my time and i want to get out it's not fun yeah being a teacher anymore. So, and, and I'll just speak from 
my perspective and maybe some people that I've spoken to. And it's an interesting dual perspective because I get it. So if I'm a teacher and the teacher across the hall for me, say we're both in a sixth grade classroom, you're on, you're one teacher, I'm the other, we both teach English. If I teach nothing that you teach as far as the standards in sequence, we have to agree on a sequence of standards. We have to agree on a common text. We have to agree on common assessments that we've planned with. The, the reason they want that to happen, administrators, is because what if a child transfers? What if a student comes in from somewhere else? If, if, though, if the within the district it's not aligned, or even within the building it's not aligned, how can students transfer and then be assured that the education is where they left? So that's kind of the counter argument to it. Um, but as far as teachers being empowered, you would think after four years of college education, you would have a pretty good idea of what good instruction is, you know? So, so well, it, it's, it's a hard concept for me to wrap my head around or as far as like, what's the good, what's the right call when you say, let teachers teach. I, I've always struggled with that. I recall in junior high school, of course, we had a lot of veterans that were teaching back then. And we, I had one science teacher and he said, what is the purpose of you being here in school? Why, why, why are you here? And there were, you know, of course, mostly it's met with silence and, and one person <laughs> says, you know, how, you know how it is, you know, yeah, for sure. nobody wants to speak up, but he said, you know, why, why are you here? Why do we have this building? Why are you here? Why are you in all these classes? And, and, you know, obviously, you know, seventh, eighth graders, there weren't any answers to it. He said, you are here to, because it is our job to teach you to think. Right. And I think we were too caught up with answers versus thought process. With, right. Yeah. And it, and, 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 you know, the, 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 just the basic, they've gotten so far away from the basics with these things. And if, if I'd really like to talk, if I were elected governor, I'd, I'd want to talk. I, I'm not a teacher. I've never been right. a teacher. I was a pretty good student, but I never was a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but are, are and, you sure they uh, would attest to but, that? If we check your discipline files, would they back that up? <laughs> <laughs> actually, because you are actually, the rebel, my, right? <laughs> my, actually, my I loved civics classes. My civics teacher in Smyrna High School, and we were in the old school back then before the new one was built. His name was Braden Shoup. He, he ended up being the football coach, too. He was a Korean War veteran. And, of course, we got into discussions in a civics, ninth grade civics class. And he said to me, he said, Dave Graham, you are a dissenter and you will always be a dissenter. <laughs> and he's right. I, nobody ever does anything to suit me. It's got, it, there's got to be a better way. That's what I always, right. always run into. So, and the teachers can, can pick that out. You know, from, you know, you can, you can, you know, you have students, you can pick Oh, dude, you can out. spot them. Yeah. You can, you can spot them. And, uh, I would, I would look to, um, and, and no teacher is going to talk to you if you're a governor that's just doing a fluff that you just want to hear what they say and then nothing's going to get done. But I would, I would want to talk to teachers like you and others and, and, and the school, you know, bring everybody into it. 
and say, what is it that we're wasting time on that we're not getting the results that's taking away from teaching students to think and get away from this one size fits all yeah. and uni- uniformity to this? Um, well, so part of the perception, at least on my understanding, and I'll just speak for myself at this point, is federal funds are tied to student achievement through standardized testing. And it's very hard. Also, part of a teacher's performance rating they're 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 like hey are you going to go on an improvement plan or or are you adequate (laughs) satisfactory is actually the word they use you taught in a satisfactory manner um is the student's performance on this assessment standardized one test a year at, at like maybe um six to seven months in of a nine month school year so it's kind of a two-fold issue where if federal funds are associated with student performance and then a teacher's job is associated with student performance on that standardized test, what else do people expect to happen? You have to get those scores up in order to keep getting money in and to keep getting your job. So you're kind of getting squeezed on both ends, if that makes sense. And well, that, that makes sense. It's it's the wrong concept. Of, right. And, 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 and again, it's 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 the communist system. All right. We're going to dictate to you how you educate your students. And it's going to come from Washington, D.C. Yeah. And it's it's always the, the and I don't know if I'm a super conspiracy theorist because I don't know if I read enough to be a super conspiracy theorist. I think I just talk and think kind of like conspiracy theorists. But you've got to wonder about the lobbyist and why is this assessment chosen? Who lobbied to say this is the standardized test that accurately measures student achievement? Why is this the metric we're going by? And well, remember who- George Bush Jr. was the education president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the eloquent Rem- speaker that he is. Remember before nine eleven? You remember that was he was down at the school. He was going to yeah. be the education. Oh yeah, yeah, right that morning he was reading to him, man. And yeah, then that yeah, that was, picture. and that, and and uh, I, I thought that was uh, that was odd for a Republican to be promoting federal involvement. In yeah, this ag- thing. again, if you go stereotypical, it would be odd, right? Because, like you've said, the more local you are, the more impact you can have on your local government. Because the more your vote's worth, it's not watered down. It's a simple fraction, right? It's the denominator yeah. concept. It's it's a it's it's a Republican, and the Republicans have gotten away from that. In that. The basic concept is is to push it down to the lowest level of self-government possible. Yeah, and I loved how you said that, man. Like you want to push decisions to the lowest level, which again goes to boots on the ground. You're the ones there. Can I empower you to make the right decision? Can I train you to make the right decision? Have you gone through adequate training yeah. so you understand what the good decision is that goes with our mission? And, and, and what is it about your job you really hate? As a All teacher right. or anybody? Yeah, anybody. Oh, anybody? Um, dress code? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean things about your job that you really don't like to do, and that, that, that yeah, it, tracks. It, so for for me, it's it's work that doesn't actually matter. Like it, it would almost be like filling in minutes that nobody looks at, giving assessments, oh, yeah. oh, giving yeah. giving assessments to kids that I'm giving them. Not to help the children, but because someone above them almost needs to say the assessment was given in order to right. meet a mandate. And you, you see it as a wasted day. Sure. And that would just be me again that I'm speaking to. But it's like 
if I'm a professional, I don't want to waste my time. I want to have high impact time. I want to be right. efficient. And it, it, it shorts you out. It, 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 you, you're not, you're not, it just is no fun. Yeah. Well, and it also takes away from your creativity. And part of, I think why people, again, I don't know, just to speak to education, I feel like a lot of people in education want to get in there because it allows them to be a little bit creative. It al- allows them to be a little eccentric with how they get mm-hmm. their points across with content. And I always think back, I, we, I, I think back to, to teachers that really made a difference in my life because they, they took a personal interest passion. in what you were doing as a student. And that's, I think that's being lost. Yeah, because passion is very personal. And if you're told to read this page on this day, or if you're told you have to teach this exact, not, not that standards are bad, but if you are told that you have to teach it in this exact way or with this exact text, it can seem kind of irregardless, irregardless of the student involved. Yes, exactly. Because you've lost your professional ability to diagnose needs of kids. Yeah, and that's why I hate it. It's it, that's part of you're still there. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I hated the what I didn't like about the army because in the army everything was geared to the dumbest guy in the room. SOP, <laughs> man. Absolutely. SOP. <laughs> this is how we do it. And it's, we keep it simple, stupid. You know, and, and the teaching method was, I'm going to tell you what I'm teaching you. I'm going to teach it to you. And then I'm going to tell you what I told, I, I taught you. Yeah. Right. Um, so. j- just for timestamp purposes of the podcast, is there anything else educationally that you'd like to put out there or maybe discuss? Not at this point. Gotcha. Not at this point. No, I, I thought that was a really good kind of broad representation, man. Like it, it feels empowering. It feels like you would love to empower on the most lowest local level for teachers who took the job not to get rich, but to care for kids to, Hey man, care for kids, make some good decisions. I trust you and I'll support you and let me hear when things are kind of screwed up and let me help you. And, and, and let's, and let's knock out the stupidity of make work. <laughs> 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 because you couldn't, you, if you in private industry, you couldn't afford all this overhead. You know, you, yeah. you, you, it's ridiculous. You know, no, it is because it's not productive. It doesn't add to the. It doesn't add to the bottom line. And in education, the bottom line is educating our students to the best of our ability. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, what's a what's another topic that we should talk about? What's something else I need to know? <laughs> well, I think when you're running for office, you need to talk about what's currently happening in the state and in the and in the country as it relates to your state of Delaware. And I just watched a segment with Lauren Witzke, who was on the One American News program, talking about uh, what was happening with the protest and and uh, the Black Lives Matter issue and so on, and how. The city of Wilmington was allowed to be, you know, vandalized, destroyed by the, the rioters. The, the governor didn't didn't uh, call the police down and made them stand down. And on top of that, you have uh, a deputy, a, an attorney general, the Democratic attorney general of Delaware, refusing to prosecute felonies that were committed during that. And uh, there, and I participated in the. Uh, uh, support our police event down on the Georgetown Circle about three weeks ago Monday, uh, 
back in July, uh, I was the only one down there with my button on campaigning at the circle and showing them I supported them. And, uh, you know, the, the state police and the law enforcement community and the military, they're up in arms by the lack of leadership by our governor in this issue. And when I was on the, the Dan Gaffney show, which I'm down there, um, every Friday morning at the Lewis diner, um, you know, with the open mic program. And I said, uh, Governor Carney has been anointed and appointed to everything he's ever done. He was put into the family business by his father-in-law, Bill Quillen, who was a Supreme Court justice on the Delaware Supreme Court, Hmm. ran for governor in 1984 against uh, Mike Castle when Mike Castle first ran as as governor. He had been lieutenant governor of DuPont. And lost by an error. He, he basically put John Carney. His his it's it's a nepotism that you have in politics. And John Carney has been anointed and appointed to everything he's ever done. He was anointed as finance secretary for eight years in the nineties under Tom Carper. He was anointed as lieutenant governor under Ruth Ann Minner for eight years down in Dover. And then he was, uh, you know. Uh, given a free pass uh, to replace Mike Castle in 2010 because he had lost the uh, primary for governor. He spent six years down in Washington, D.C., in the minority, under the tutelage of Nancy Pelosi, drinking that liberal grape Kool-Aid. And then (laughs) he was a changed man when he came back to Delaware and became governor. And it, it appears with our the Democrats at the top of the state government, and I'm talking about the, the the governor and the lieutenant governor and the attorney general, they're taking orders from Washington, D.C. about what they're supposed to do. And, and we know how Nancy Pelosi operates. She's a money person. And it appears to me that they've been told, if you do not do what we tell you to do when it comes to this rioting and looting and everything, we don't care about your citizens, but if you don't do what we tell you to do to support our national agenda to get a Democrat elected, you're not going to get any money. And the reason I say that is in 2018, Delaware went from having two Republicans of the 11 statewide offices held by Republicans because to having no None of the 11 statewide offices are currently held by a Republican. And what happened in 2018 was the National Democratic Party sent $300,000 to the Newcastle County Democrat Party with the objective of getting out the vote and making sure they took out Ken Simpler as the treasurer and State Senator Greg Lavelle as the state senator up there because they were the anointed ones to be the governor candidate and the lieutenant governor candidate in 2020. So um, one thing I think I've talked to people, and what you do, campaigns are supposed to be about issues and ideas. Right. And what we saw here is a demonstration that the governor of Delaware has the power to tell the state police and the National Guard not to restore order. That's dangerous. That just sounds so odd. 
Yeah, but that's the rea- that's the reality of what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so, if you you know, I have contacts around the country that I talk to, and one said to me out in the West where they had militias, and the the protesters showed up. They came in the vans, and the militias just showed up. And stood there, and the, the the protesters sat on the curb for a couple hours, and decided this was not a good place to have a demonstration. And and one outside the box idea that someone mentioned to me, and I think it's worth pursuing, is the idea of, and this would have to be with the approval of the Delaware State Police, is uh, having volunteer militias formed independent of the governor as a subs- as a subsidiary corporation of the volunteer fire companies and they would have to be trained and supervised you know send them to the fire school weapons training and all that but i think it's demonstrated this year very well on the national and state level that we need to have a little bit of a better segregation of duties of that we, if it, 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 it's so dangerous, that what John Carney has done. Who would call the militia together or in power, if not the governor? Well, it wouldn't be under the power of the governor. Well, no, yeah, that's be. what I'm saying. Who would who would give who would put up the bat signal, <laughs> and everyone would well, hop in their cars well, and get together? A, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I have this credential of being a CPA. I don't practice it anymore. But one of the 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 concepts of being a CPA, it's, it's to prevent fraud. That's what it's, it's all about. Right. And, you, and, and it's not about financial statements. It's about putting a system in place that can't be manipulated to cheat. We've got a system in place now with a governor having absolute power over the state police, the National Guard, and, and by, by virtue of that over you know, Democratic mayors or whatever oversee their police departments. And back in revolutionary times, we did have militias that formed. They were the basis for the National Guard. So the militias would would operate independently of the governor. Yeah, and I- if you had a bad governor, like we've got a bad governor, we've got a governor that's beyond less than adequate. And if if the governor fails to order the state police to protect the lives and property of citizens as he failed to do in Wilmington. And you have an attorney general that fails to prosecute felonies. Then a militia would serve as a backup when your government fails you. Yeah. I just, in my head, I'm like, well, if you're training them, if you're arming them, if they're uniformed, all that's money, right? So normally the person who's giving the money is, kind of in charge of them, or if it's a government agency, someone in the well, government I, would have to be in charge, right? Would have to sign well, off on I, that I, budget. I think uh, that public mind citizens, I mean, we've already got people with weapons and, and bullets and everything. All you would do, they would be, they would be organized. Huh. Yeah, it's I, something like, worth exploring. Some, an idea that someone mentioned to me, and I, you know, it's, if, if elections are about issues and ideas, and of course, I, I, it would not be pursued. Of course, I doubt that the General Assembly would go along with it because it's filled with these far-left liberal politicians. 
that are dancing to the tune of Nancy Pelosi. Hmm. And uh, as governor, it would it would probably take two cycles to clean out the state legislature to get it to start working for the people of Delaware. Because you get these state legislators, both parties, they get down there, they start riding the pension clock. And you can't get them to do anything. The only the ones that are good down there are the ones that are independent businessmen in both parties that are can't their their employment can't be threatened if they don't go along with something. What's the pension clock? I'm unfamiliar. I've well, always wondered. Like people always like they they spec their own. well. If if you have to realize, first of all, they're they're, they're it's a part time job, and once you get elected, you're really only committed to going down there when the when the legislature is in session which basically is a, a few weeks in January then they take a break because of the joint finance committee when they're doing the budgeting decisions and then they come back after that and they're in session until the end of June and then they're out of session from June 30th till January of the next year unless a special session is called by the Senate to approve judges that's all okay. so the rest of the time they're supposed to be doing constituent services because once you get elected, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have an op- you in your mind you should have an obligation to take care of all your constituents, not just the ones that are members of your party. Makes because sense. a partisan politician is an enemy of the state. They put their political party above God and family and everything else, and we've had those in Delaware in the past. Uh, but the good good legislature. So, for example, uh, uh, the longest-serving state legislature uh, is an old-time conservative Democrat, uh, Bruce Ennis. He was a state police officer, a captain, for 20 years, and then he was elected the first time in 1982. And Bruce Ennis is a prime example of how a politician for me. And you have to remember, if it weren't for Bruce Ennis this last session, this this anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment legislation would have made it through the, the legislature and onto the governor's desk. And Bruce Ennis was an old-time Democrat, and he, he realizes the importance of our, our Second Amendment. But Bruce Ennis helps everyone. In fact, not only does he help people in his own Senate district, anybody from any of the surrounding Senate districts is they he's on the phone he he might handle a hundred calls a day from people he he's a prime example of the quality that you should be looking at it happens to be that you know as governor you you have an obligation to work across party lines with whoever gets sent yeah you would hope right to to get things done for the good of the people of Delaware and Bruce Ennis and I have been allies for five or six years on this reform of family court issue uh, that it has to be uh, reformed and uh, modeled on the Connecticut uh, model of an open court uh, because uh, it's one of my trademark issues. That's what's motivated me to do what I've done for 20 years to pursue the governor's seat because if I realized that you you couldn't talk to a legislator about it and none of them wanted to get but you could you talk to any legislator about family court, and they said they are just whether it's Democrat or Republican, and they are sick of hearing all the horror stories of how these lawyers are using it as a cottage industry to become rich and and mistreating our citizens. It's it's slow, it's inefficient, and uncaring. And 
It needs to be fixed. Before, it needs to be fixed. And I want to hear about the reforming of the family courts, but when you had mentioned pension clock, it's a part-time job. I, I'm I'm just a little curious about that. Do you have to have so many years? What, what's the amount of years of service before you pull the pension? Why is that so appealing? Is it like a benefits package? Is it straight the, money? It, well, there's special... Uh, I, I, I don't get into the details of everything uh, when you're running for governor, but the reality is... The Senate, the legislators have their own special pension rules about how many years they have to send. It's very, very, very generous compared to a normal merit state employee. Hmm. And if it's a part time job and they have other full, most of them have other full time jobs. So the, the salary for a state legislature is about uh, 45, 50,000 plus. If they're on a special committee or a speaker, it goes up to sixty, sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars a year, and and they're worth it because in leadership it's more than just just the usual thing. But when they retire, they get a pension from that. And so if you're, and I don't blame them for doing it; it's the way it is. But if if you work and get elected to the state legislature. And as long as you do an adequate job, it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to be defeated in a re-election campaign unless you do something really horrible hmm. on, and end up on the front page and someone comes in and takes you out. But so with, in, in that scenario, they get down there, they get elected and they get re-elected. They do what's required of the job, but they're not going to be aggressively pursuing anything outside their comfort level. So you, you end up with a lot of people in the state legislature, frankly, and I've witnessed it, witnessed it on this uh, family court issue. You got very few people with any spine that's that down there to stand up for anything. And what needs to be changed about family court? I know you had said that the lawyers were using it as a moneymaker. It's a little slow and inefficient. But what, what actually would be the change that should happen? Well, actually, when I – they paid all my expenses to run in the primary for governor in 2004 uh, because Bill Lee needed help raising money for the twofer effect of uh, 1200 before the primary, 1200 after. He wasn't effectively running for governor. And uh, – they paid all my expenses, and I became. Of course, no one knew that was the backstory of that election for primary in two thousand four. But what I did was I just became a single issue candidate, and I talked about the family court, and that it was the worst domestic court in the United States of America. Any court of law that operates in secret is inherently corrupt and dishonest because of the institutionalized greed and dishonesty of trial lawyers. Hmm. And um, because of that, Nancy Wagner, the Republican rep from Dover, who was head of the House Judiciary Committee, looked into it and realized that because family court was not a constitutional court, it did not have to be open. She had put through a constitutional amendment. It took like three cycles to go through. It's, it takes two cycles for a constitutional amendment to be approved. And it was, a, it was the Constitution of the State of Delaware 
was changed and made the family court a constitutional court. A constitutional court is required to be open. We have a state judiciary that does not obey the Constitution of the state of Delaware. And Bruce Ennis, back in 2017, formed a special blue panel uh, uh, committee out of the state legislature. And he's, you know, the senior member, the most long-serving. He's no backbencher by any means of the state legislature. And I went, I went to the Senate caucus room where they had, and basically they went through the process and then the, the lawyers came in and they shut it down. They shut it down. And, uh, and the latest that, that I heard was I, I checked around, you know, uh, we've had a series of chief justices that can't even, can't even perform, can't last through a 12 year term. Myron Steele resigned early in 2013, and instead of putting Jim Vaughn on there that probably would have taken up the gauntlet and reformed family court, uh, and I supported him in that, they put Leo Strine, a political operative, in that, in, in as chief justice. Jack Markell did that. And uh, he only, you know, Leo, you don't put political operatives on the court, especially on as chief justice of the Supreme Court of Delaware. And Leo Strine made, made so many mistakes that he was asked to resign, and he resigned in 2018. And once again, the state Senate requested and wanted John Carney in 2018 to appoint Jim Vaughn, who was already on this, on has already been rated as qualified as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And instead of doing that, he appointed you know, one of the elites, Colin Sites number three, to be on the Chief Justice Supreme Court. And the last time I checked, Colin Sites is opposed to obeying the Constitution of Delaware and opening up the family court. So it's sad. It's sad. I think we're going to have to have someone like uh, 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 one of the, we're going to have to have a, a suit in federal court about family court, because you have no leadership coming from the Delaware State Bar. What does opening it up do to benefit it? Well, uh, I actually, in December of 2018, I took a delegation to the Connecticut court, which is rated among the the best domestic court in the United States of America. Even the country of Russia sent people over to, to observe how they do business. And the delegation was... Bruce Center, it was a bipartisan, it's a bipartisan issue. Senator Bruce Ennis, who had been on the Family Law Commission, went up, and uh, a Democrat, and, and Republican Mike Ramone, who was on the family, uh, family Law Commission from Pike Creek, went up. And in addition to that, uh, James and Rietta, who were citizen members of the Family Court, uh, Family Law Commission, to observe how an open court functions. And that court is fast, efficient, caring, gets more done in a morning than a family court in any of these counties gets done all week. But why? And it, like, what's the advantage well, to it? Well, because it doesn't exist for the financial benefit of the lawyers. That everything in Delaware, it's all, when I, I got drug up there, that's how I became familiar with the Connecticut court. And they tried to illegally transfer a jurisdiction. 
And it ended up being a case before the full Supreme Court of Delaware back in the late 90s. I was pulled up there and brought into a court. It was much like the old courthouse. It was in downtown Hartford. And I went and I got this, you know, I got divorced in Delaware. And under federal and state law, as long as one of the parties is still in the state where you are divorced, None of the other states are allowed to take jurisdiction over it. And out of the blue, in uh, December of 1996, I got this certified letter saying I had a court hearing in Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> and I got up there, and I'm in this open court. And I, when I dress up, I look like a lawyer. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and I was up there, and... And I appeared before the judge, and he was the chief judge of the Connecticut Family Court. And he sort of got flustered when he saw me. And you're in an open court, much like a court of common pleas, with all the lawyers watching what's going on. And I, he, he said, uh, uh, Mr. Graham, have you considered getting a lawyer? I said, I don't need a lawyer to tell you, Your Honor, you do not have jurisdiction. Well, under the law, once you raise the issue of jurisdiction, the judge is supposed to stop and rule on that issue. Instead of that, he got so flustered, and he sent us up to, to you know, uh, remediation. Things have, you know, the, the, the deals get cut behind closed doors, but the final decision occurs in the court and brought us back there. And I said, it doesn't mean anything, Your Honor, because this agreement is not valid. You don't have jurisdiction. And again, he's all flustered. They, they tried to send, send it in the back door at the family court, and the judge in, in Kent County said, federal, state law, you don't have jurisdiction over that. And then they pulled me back up there because they're so fast, because it was a Chinese finger trap, and um, <laughs> you know they couldn't pull back out. They had to go forward, and there, was a, you know, there were lawyers in Delaware involved in the corruption uh, of trying to transfer jurisdiction. And... Uh, Pull me back up there. There was a woman judge. And, but the bottom line was, I found out early on that chief judge was the father of her lawyer's partner. And every lawyer in that room knew it. And the whole thing fell apart. He got retired. The woman judge that I appeared two months later, she got transferred to motor vehicle court. Because Connecticut does not put up with corruption like the state of Delaware does. And that corruption is exposed in an open court. And maybe this, maybe I should have asked this initially. Open court means what? That the public, anyone from the public can go in and view? Any, anyone can, it's like a court of common pleas. Okay. They come in, you come in, there's a, it's scheduled, and you go before the judge. And everybody sits there listening to what the proceedings are. And because... If that had happened to me in the Delaware family court behind closed doors, it would never have been exposed. Never would have been exposed. And it happens all the time in family court. So in that, fact, I almost, I almost and when my daughter was three, and that's another story, I almost lost, almost lost contact with her for the rest of her childhood because uh, there was a, I got sold out. Behind the, the, the doors of the family court, 
my lawyer called me all of a sudden, this was back in 1993, called me out of the blue and said, we have our custody hearing today. And I said, what, what? He said, no, you got to get right down here. So I went down to his office. I looked at the agreement and, and they, I said, who wrote this agreement? He said, the other lawyer did. The other lawyer was a Kent County Democratic Party chairman. I had been, I had been John Stills uh, uh, treasurer in 1988. He, the, the other lawyer hated me. And my lawyer had was before the state Senate to be a family court judge. And he had, he had sold. And so we rush over oh, wow. to the court. I'm sitting there looking at it. And he just gives me this real hard look with the dark eyes that you get from a devil. And, and I looked up and a prominent psychologist in, that, was, that was in Dover at the time walked by. And I said, what's he doing here? And he looked at me with these hard eyes and said, this is in November 1992. He said, David, if you do not agree with what we are doing here today, that guy will testify against you and you will never see your daughter again. Oh, wow. And so, well, it's, a, it's an interesting story now, but I had enough experience in law to know when the when the freight train of a corrupt judicial system comes to run you over, you just lay down between the tracks. <laughs> so I didn't say anything. You know, they pulled a judge down from Wilmington to hear the case. That's how corrupt it was. And I just didn't say anything. And I, it was an awful agreement, you know, unfair. And then I didn't say anything. And after the hearing, I, I, first thing I did was I went down to the bank and stopped payment on the check I had given him, a $3,500 check. <laughs> and then I went to the law office and I, I, I just said to the secretary who I was, at, you know, knew. And I said, I never got a copy of that agreement. You mind if I have it? She said, sure, here's the file. And I went in the next room. I pulled the agreement out. I walked outside the building and I tore it up and all hell broke loose because they had made me mad and they knew it. And so I'm a, I'm sales manager for Oakwood mobile homes, North Dover at the time. And I, I get a call from a lawyer friend who we've been in a supper, supper club, like Gary Dodge. And, uh, I knew what he was calling about and I wouldn't take his call. I was a manager there. I didn't have to take his call. And then about 20 minutes later, I look outside my door, and there he is, his, his little Mercedes parked outside. And he comes in, he's all wide-eyed. And he had been my friend for a couple of years, and we were in a supper club together. And so I was always a, a my, you know, model manner, professional, CPA type. And um, he came in, and he said to me, he said, David, you know you are in serious trouble I says, what do you mean, Gary? I thought all those proceedings behind the family court doors were confidential. And he said, they're going to put you in prison. And then the army sergeant and me came out from when I was a young man, when I was 20. And I stood up and I bled. Oh, I have a voice. I, you know, I'm a drill sergeant. <laughs> voice. And, and I, you know. I mean, I know how to cuss. I don't cuss because you got to save your cussing for when you're really angry. And I was furious. And I said, you may F everybody else in this state, but you ain't going to F me. And one day you're going to regret you did it. And I said, so get your butt out of here because 
I'm, and he had never seen me like this, ever. Because I'm always, you know, I was just beyond <laughs> angry that they were going to, what they had tried to do to me. So he said, well, you need to get another lawyer. So I called John Still, the state senator that I got elected and told him what happened. And he said, that sounds just like those two. And he says, oh, well, I happened to sit next to Roger Kelsey at the Rotary Club. And uh, he just retired as a family court judge for 24 years. I'll, I'll call him. So he called back five minutes later. And he said, Roger said, call him. Here's his number. So I called Roger Kelsey and I went in and I talked to him. And he, and he says, yeah, that sounds like something those two would do. And he says, now the judge out of Wilmington is really angry at you. He says, but I can calm him down. But you got to go with what this agreement says. And I said, no, you know, so you had to go along with it. But the rest of the story is I pick up the paper and my lawyer that had sold me out, uh, Tommy Jackson uh, and Gary Dalton, who's dead now, was the other lawyer involved in it. And Tommy Jackson didn't get to be a family court judge. Bill Walls did. So I called John Still and I said, uh, John, the state senator, I said, John, what happened with, with Tommy Crook? He said, well, he said, we, uh, you know, we changed some votes so nobody's feelings got hurt. But let me tell you something. Tommy Jackson won't get to be dog catcher in this town because of what he did to you. But hmm. the point of it is, Sean, you know, luckily I was smart enough and experienced enough to defend myself. Yeah, I mean, all the steps you're going through, I don't know if many people would even right, know how to approach other, it. But other people are victimized by that family court every day. And apparently don't people, even know it, right? I mean, just wow. Well, they all have their horror stories about what happened to them. I, I had a neighbor that got divorced from someone that had the money and never got to see her four sons grow up. Wow. I mean, there are awful things that are happening in that court. It's the most anti-family institution in this state and it's because the lawyers are getting rich off of what's happening so the only thing i'm thinking of when you open up a court for public viewing is doesn't i, I guess family court in essence is closed because they want to have privacy for the minors am i thinking about that right that's not the way things work because when there, there's a minor involved then the judge will say, well, let's handle this testimony behind closed doors. Uh, right? It's the judge's discretion as you. to what goes behind closed doors. In the family court of Delaware, everything's closed. Got everything. And the, and the worst thing, of course, is the uh, the PFAs that occur in the family court. You know, uh, there's a when I was down there, when when uh, we had an incident and they, they subpoenaed like three state troopers to testify against me, and the, the trooper came over to me and he said, uh, uh, Mr. Graham, uh, remember, I'm here for you, too. And then he said to me, uh, you still live by yourself, don't you? And I said, yeah. I said, if a woman comes to my house the next morning, her bag better be packed by the front door. <laughs> and he says, you're a smart man. He said, just last week, my partner and I, under court order, had to go to a man's house that he owned and take the man out of his own house in handcuffs. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, this man had met a woman and she had two children. 
and they had a relationship. And so he was, he allowed her to be in his home. And she became very abusive, and he, he needed to get her out. So he went to the family court, filed a petition against her, saying, you know, she's being violent, she's hitting me, and so on. And the court didn't grant it, because I'm, he was a man. And she went down the next day and filed a protection order from abuse from him, oh. and it was granted, and they had to go, a man has no property rights in Delaware. Huh. So there's awful things that happen in that court. And it's happening to women, it's happening to men, because it gets back to the basic concept. And, and there's a Supreme Court justice that uh, says sunshine is the best disinfectant. And the family court of Delaware needs to be remodeled, and per the Constitution of Delaware, remodeled on the basis of how the Connecticut court operates. And it served the people that serve the children, the parents, and the families, and all those related to it first, not the pocketbooks of the lawyer. Yeah, that, I'm still so curious on that. How does a closed system allow for lawyers to make more money? Well, one thing that came out was when I was up in Connecticut before the second time, I, before the woman, the family court judge, who was a woman, she was asking questions of the, my daughter's mother, and she said, now, when did you get divorced? And she told her. And when did you have your custody agreement? And she told her. And when did you have your child support agreement? And she told her. And she said, and, and when did you have your property agreement? Told her. And the judge said, you mean to tell me you don't come into court in one day and resolve all your issues? Uh. They break it all up into pieces. Hmm. And you know what pieces mean? It means lawyer fees. There's hard cases of people spending over $100,000 on lawyers to try to get justice in that court. It's, wow. And when I, when I went up to the court and we were you know, hosted by the, a woman who was now the chief the judge of that court, family court, we were hosted for the day, Senator Ennis and, and Mike Ramone. And, I, and then I you know, talked to her privately. She said, it's no great secret. Family Court in Delaware is a cottage industry for the lawyers. That makes that's a great example because um, if you do have to divide everything, I would have thought you would get your court date, you block out blank amount of hours, and uh, submit the paperwork or whatever that's been arbitrated behind the scenes. I guess with the lawyers speaking, and it's mm -hmm. ruled on. I can't believe it would be several different days to handle all those aspects. That, well, that, no, it's it's slow and inefficient. It takes years to resolve things man. in family court. Yeah, that um, they, then that explains it because. And, and when I when I was a single issue candidate in two thousand four, and of course I'm down to one of uh, a Friday night happy hour, and one of the women comes up to me, a young woman. She says, she says, she says, I work for the family court. If you reform it, I won't have a job because we don't need all the people that we have there. Do not expect leadership from the Delaware State Bar on this issue. Man. It's a you know it's a brotherhood of deceit, and you know the the, the and it's going to take a governor that is is willing to step on some toes and and lock some heels and hurt somebody's feelings 
to make the change because the governor is a bully pulpit. And, and uh, we shouldn't have to have a federal lawsuit to make the Delaware State Bar obey the Constitution of Delaware. That's the bottom line. And the word is, or the, the position is escaping me, but that's what we were talking about earlier with the um, inspector general. That's what, that's what it was, right? Somebody coming in who can kind of audit and figure these kind of things out with some um, autonomy. Well, it has, the, yeah, it has the authority to come in and look at what's being done. If it's not being done properly, it has the authority to bring charges. Yeah. Currently, the state auditor is powerless. First of all, they've been dis- they've been um, they've been disavowed. I think at one time there was like sixty staff members down to like twenty. You know, they don't want anything looked at. But the state auditor, if they find anything that's illegal or wrong, they have to go through a Democrat attorney general. Mm. And it all they lays have, with but, the attorney general. But an inspector general has the power to bring to uh, bring charges for. The, 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 that's why Rick Jensen likes the Inspector General issue. He said because the, the Attorney General defends the agencies, it doesn't defend the citizens of Delaware. And the Inspector General would. Right. And 45 states last count have Inspector Generals. And Jimmy Carter, uh, to his credit, when he was uh, president from 76 to 80, he put Inspector Generals in every federal agency. Yeah, I mean, if with COVID, we're looking at. I mean, the I I, I can't wrap my head around the budget implications and the ta- and the um, financial repercussions for taxes that are going to occur because of COVID alone. And that's just COVID. But you would think an office like that would help budgeting so much. It would help to trim so much, and it right. it, it almost sounds like absolutely needed someone to just be like, man, we don't need blank these positions. We don't need to spend blank on this. You need to submit these forms in order to make sure this money is being spent or, the right or, way. Or, or that's a bad contract because they're related parties. Right? Yeah, got it. That. That's, why, that's why the budget of Delaware has ballooned year after year after year. And uh, if you've ever read the book uh, Only in Delaware by Celia Cohen that was published about 20 years ago with the history of Delaware from World War II up through uh, Ruth Ann Minter becoming governor I have in not. January of 2000. Hadn't even but heard of it. I'll have to loan it to you. I've got a couple copies. Only in Delaware by who? By Celia Cohen. Okay. She was a news journal reporter, and then she was the one that, that did the blog called uh, uh, Delaware Grapevine, which had all a little bit of the inside information of what was going on in Delaware politics. But I'll give you a guess what the state of the state budget was for Delaware right after World War II, like 1946 or 1947. What the whole state budget was for Delaware. I can't even, I I don't know. Uh, $10 million. million. We know it's about about $4 billion now, right? $4 billion. Yeah, so I'll go super low. $10 million? (laughs) You're right. $10.7 million. Was I real? Oh, my God. I was trying to be facetiously low. No, no. $10.7 million. The whole state after World War II was run on under $11 million. Right. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And if you look at the stats, you know, they just keep on, you know, well – to be fair, uh, a lot of services performed by the state Delaware, by the state of Delaware, 
in other states are performed at the county level. Okay. Um, that, you know, but there's no doubt there's a lot of fat and, and uh, fraud and abuse in the Delaware budget. Man, that um, that's a real. I, again, that inspector general is something I had no idea about. I didn't know Delaware did not have one of those. Um, I would have thought. Well, they, they say we have a state auditor's office and right? we let it go. Yeah, right. But the fact that if they don't have any power and then they present these things and, and nothing gets charged, yeah. Yeah, because the attorney general. Um, because it's a Democrat governor with a Democrat attorney general. Wow. If the truth came out, they couldn't get reelected. <laughs> tell me, tell me what I don't know about prisons, because I feel like you're a sage. <laughs> what what don't I know about prisons in Delaware? Because and I I'm almost positive they're not private, and I've heard horror stories about private prisons and the relationships and backdoor things that can occur to keep inmates in private prisons because it's yeah. a for profit thing. But Delaware's prisons are not private; they are state funded, right? Right. Well, you have to look at you always have to look at the history and understand the begots to understand how we came from something before that seemed to work okay to something 100 years later that does not work very well. And the, the, the problem with the Department of Corrections is there's, there's no correction to it anymore. It's a revolving <laughs> door. Uh, and uh, it so happens, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but 100 years ago in 1920, before there was any state police force, my grandfather, Charles Washington Graham, was elected to a two-year term as sheriff of Kent County. I don't think you mentioned that, no. Back in 1920, there was no state police force because the state police force didn't come into being until, I think, 1923. But my grandfather was the chief law enforcement officer of Kent County. Huh. He, uh, he ran the prison. It was a Mars building, I think, down there on uh, on Water Street. I think it was built at that before that. He had he administered the prison. Of course, he arrested people, brought them into court. And back then, they had not only did they hang people back then for murder, they also had the whipping post. And my mother told me there's a picture in the history book somewhere of my grandfather administering a court order punishment of, of a whip uh, on the whipping post. And uh, that's the way Delaware was 100 years ago. And then what happened in the 60s was when they started the state prison system. Did your, did your grandfather ever talk to you about when he had to administer whipping? Like, Mentally, well, how he copes with that? Unfortunately, or? he he died two years before I was born. Okay. But my sister is the family genealogist, and she's been looking up and finding all these news articles about him. And, and what was interesting was he was probably progressive for his time because he only lasted one term because there's a story that he painted and cleaned up all the prisons, painted them, you know, made them habitable for human beings. Right. Which was, even though he was a Democrat, wasn't popular at that time. Uh, yeah, so uh, I we were trying to find out if he ever had to hang somebody. Yeah, yeah I just mentally, that's uh, man, yeah. that, that that that's a tough place to be mentally if you care about people to then yeah. have yeah, to yeah. enact that kind oh, of punishment. 
and talking about the prison, it's, uh, you know, it's the Department of Corrections. And the question is, where's the correction occurring? It's a big business now, you know, with all the employees and all the things that go with it. You know, they, they, they subcontract the medical care to someone. And um, so my question is, what my as governor, it, seem, it seems to me in Delaware, there's there's some kind of law that says we're not allowed to look outside our borders for solutions to our problems <laughs> unless we pay somebody's buddy a professional fee to go find the answer for us mm. and come back with it. And, but other states, we have to, in Delaware, we have to look at other states and possibly other countries to see, okay, what are they doing and having a, a, a higher success rate with their the, the people that violate the law compared to what Delaware is. Delaware seems to be going backwards. The the numbers that I hear about with prison reform and the need for, like um, I think it was America has 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's inmates. And, and yeah, that tells you right there there's something we're doing wrong. Yeah, and you think of land of the free, right? Like, like, and, and you're a quarter of the a quarter of prisoners in the world are in America. What is this? And then you get into the minority numbers, and I, I think it was like even in Washington D.C., uh, a black male is 19 times more likely to be arrested than a white male. And you're like that. That just it, something is screwed up with the incarceration mentality we have. And I don't, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. And that's why I was interested to hear reform wise, where you would kind of stand on that well, or ideas you could bring with a, it. You know, I, 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 I say, I don't really have any original thought. I talk to a lot of people and get their <laughs> opinion and, and, uh, you know, and, and if you ask their opinion, it's surprising what, what people can tell you. And career politicians don't do that. They don't ask, you know, questions because they might have to solve the problem in the process, <laughs> you know, they, they, the career politicians and these, uh, they throw money at the problem and call it solved. Yeah. Funding, and as right? a, someone with a business, you know, private industry background in, in, as a, someone with experience as an executive, the last thing you do is spend money to solve a problem. You try to have figure out how to solve it without spending money because it affects your bottom line. That's the opposite of state government. That's a good point. Because a lot of times if you hear when they talk about what they've done, it's allocating funds to a particular right. thing versus, well, what is the metric of success? <laughs> what, what, Like what right. is success? Like you could spend no money and all of a sudden reduce recidivism to 50%, 50% less people who were convicted came back a second time. Brilliant. What? How did that happen? Let's Let's double down on that now. Let's try to expand that now. And it seems like we're small enough as a state where you could even do different case studies within counties if you needed to, to see what was effective. And I, I just, but you're absolutely right, man. So, they, they tend to tout like how much they spend as a solution. Right. And they never report on the results. Yeah. Or it's never even predefined. Like, you know, I'm going to spend $10 million with the hope of our goal is 50% of convicted criminals will be employed. Or 50% of released criminals will be employed within six months. You know, just something as basic as that that's very well, easily what, measured. And, and if you step back, what's the basic concept of prison and correction? Uh, you know, it's to make sure that people, ideally, that they don't 
violate the law again. Right. The deterrent factor. The deterrent factor. And that's done by restriction of freedom. And one outside the box idea I've heard, and I believe other states do this, is that they have, for example, a nonviolent offender, you know, is not a, you know, he's not a threat to the community, right. you know, like a white collar crime or, or, you know, jaywalking, whatever you want to say. Yeah, even you if know, just a minimal drug possession. Should, yeah, should they really be put into a high security prison? Right. If, and one outside-the-box idea, and again, I don't have original thoughts. I just talk to people and get ideas, which is what you're supposed to do as a governor. <laughs> and, and, uh, is, and this is really outside-the-box, is what if we had it when you committed a crime and it needed to be punished and you wanted to restrict someone's um, freedom? Liberties, yeah. You had a, week, you had a weekend jail. And uh, I've heard they do this for judges who are connected, you know, DUIs. They go to jail and prison and then they come out again. But it should be. Uh, and one thing is, you know, they want to uh, – uh, that's a current example, okay? Wesley College, their business model failed as a college for whatever reason. And they had severe financial difficulties. They can't continue. So what's in the newspaper? They want Delaware State University to take that over. Well, maybe instead of, does Delaware State University need to be larger than it is? I mean, every time you turn around, they're, they're adding buildings and so on. But maybe instead of doing that, if I were governor, I would say, wait a minute. Why don't we try out this weekend prison and use the dormitories at Wesley College? <laughs> you know what would be interesting about that idea, too? If you think of a nonviolent criminal, most – I would imagine, don't know, don't have any statistics to back this up, but they're most likely employed. And what happens if you go away to jail for a month or two or six? Yeah, your whole, everything falls apart. Yeah, you, you lose. And then what if people actually depend on your income to provide for them, right? Like kids have to eat, your, your significant other, whatever. So like well, that's a very interesting, interesting way to approach it is, yeah, all right, man, you don't get to party this weekend. You're going to jail, but at least you get to oh, keep yeah. your job. Have you ever had your, have you ever had your freedom restricted? Yeah. Well, I was in the military, so yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, did you ever get locked up behind closed doors? I'm a, I'm a no comment on that one. Leave? And you didn't, yeah, well, uh, you talk to anyone that's happened to you and nobody likes it. Yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Nobody it, likes it's, it because you're behind closed doors. And you, yeah, well, being in the military is a, is a semi good example because, you know, you hated it so much you wanted to get out right. and you were thinking of, thinking of things you want, you would consider doing to get thrown out. But yeah, you, you know, you sign that contract as an enlisted person, you're at the disposal yeah. of uh, Uncle Sam for whatever he needs you for. And, uh, yeah, you, your freedom is restricted. Yeah. And, and if we, we had a program, I think. It would be more cost-effective to reduce the need for prison space, and I think you may succeed in having more people not decide. I don't like that. Yeah, and especially uh, if it's I'm like repetitive. Anything that does it again. Imagine if you had a month term where you lived Monday through Friday, and then Friday night at five you had to report to jail, and you didn't get out till Sunday at whatever eight, and you had to do that week after week after week. 
you, you like it, it would be it would be so annoying, <laughs> right? Like plus, you just wouldn't plus be a- the threat. Plus the threat if you do something again, you ain't gonna be you're not gonna be handled with kid gloves. Yeah, right. You get to go to the big. You get to go to the big house. Yeah, no, it's that's actually a really interesting concept because then even someone who worked on weekends, you would just instead of weekend jail, it's all right Monday Tuesday for you because those are your two off days. You know, something right. like and you're not destroying it. their lives. Yes. And you're, that's you're a correcting huge, them. That's a huge part of I think what people can forget when people get convicted, especially of nonviolent drug crimes. Like for the most part, I'm almost positive they do have jobs. They're probably contributors to society in positive ways, other ways. <laughs> and like by putting them in jail, you're not only affecting them, you're not only putting their employer at a loss. What about their family? What about people who depend on them? I mean, it's that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, we, we let's face it. There's two levels of justice in this in this state and in this country. For example, if if uh, you know someone who's from a stressed family environment that's living paycheck to paycheck makes the mistake of killing someone in the heat of battle, shooting them, whatever, and uh, they get arrested, they get put in jail. Uh, and of course, no bail for murder, and they don't have money for a lawyer, so a public defender is appointed for them. And you're just sitting in jail till your trial if, date. If you, if, you, if you watch, their trial takes about oh three, four days, <laughs> and they're 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 behind bars. But you have someone that uh, murders someone like Thomas Capano. That's a good example. They had money to pay for all the lawyers. How long did that trial take? Oh God, I forgot about that. I mean, that was years, wasn't it? Appeals and like well, challenges. Was, well, no. Well, the the trial itself took uh, uh, what a couple weeks, uh, more than a month. Billy um, was a presiding judge of that. Do you remember uh, that? In the in nineteen in the nineties, they had to bring him up from Sussex because none of the judges in New in Newcastle could hear that. But you know, if you got the money for lawyers, it gets it goes a long time. And you and he still got convicted, and then he was sentenced to death, and then they ruled uh, that he it got converted to a life sentence, and he died behind bars at the uh, at a relatively young age. But yeah, there's two tiers. If you got money for lawyers, yeah, or even just bail, that, that's a that's a great point too. Because when you get arrested, your trial date could be months away. So if you're not unable to post bond or bail. You're just sitting yeah. in jail being useless. Actually, you're being a drag on the system. Well, the interesting thing, twist to Thomas Capano, and I could spend like three hours talking about Thomas Capano and the trial and all the inconsistencies that, that happened around that. And that might, but uh, it was interesting because Thomas Capano was a, a lawyer, a member of the Delaware State Bar. And back then, the rule was that you would not be disbarred until you got convicted. And after, you know, the public trial and everything else, the Delaware state bar changed it to that. You got disbarred upon, upon being charged. Oh, wow. It was seismic. How could lawyers decide that when it's the whole premise? I thought was innocent until proven guilty. Well, the, the the way the Delaware State Bar operates is sometimes is a mystery to me. They have the, the Delaware State Bar has the most secret disciplinary process of any state in the union. 
in fact, it, it, and the reality is that the Delaware State Bar covers up its dirt like a cat in a freshly hoed garden. <laughs> they, you know, they have all these levels of uh, private admonitions, private discipline. And it's only if, if a lawyer does something really, really bad that it, it becomes public that they, you know, they stole a lot of money or, or you know, really bad, then it becomes public. But the interesting thing is it's required to be published. So if a lawyer in Wilmington gets disbarred, they print it in the Dover paper. If a Dover lawyer gets disbarred, they print it in the Wilmington paper. Oh. Wow. I'm not a fan of the Delaware State Bar. I just, I just think it's awful. I think, I think what's pretty clear to me is you're a fan of um, transparency and sunshine, <laughs> and you don't like secretive I'm, things. I'm, I'm a fan <laughs> of the Delaware citizens being treated with respect and dignity. Yeah, and the lawyers don't. Man, I'm kind of curious. Where do you stand on the uh, legalization of marijuana? Well. With all the serious problems that the state of Delaware has, recreational pot is a pretty low priority for me. But one question I have when I talk to people about this issue, if you work, for example, at the Walmart distribution center in Smyrna and you drive a forklift, well, if you have an accident with that forklift, serious or not, the workman's comp insurance company has a requirement that you go be tested for drugs from that call. I've heard this with the argument for the DUI is that it stays in your system or whatnot. Right. But you know what happens if you have a if that person has an accident with a forklift as a safety issue and you test positive for, for marijuana? I'm going to guess that they don't get their medical benefits. No, you'd get fired. Oh. Why would a, why would the insurance company allow you to employ someone that is impaired when they are working for you? So then you just have to have tests that actually measured impairment and not like remnants of THC well, in your system, right? What you're talking about is how can you engage in recreational pot? And have a job mm. if you're if something happens and then it gets back to what you're saying. What's going to happen to their family when they lose their job? Right. Yeah. But I, on the but on the positive side, we shouldn't be spending all our law enforcement dollars prosecuting people that have you know violate the law of using recreational pot. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what um factories in Colorado are doing with that or even California. Isn't it legal in California as well to just smoke whenever? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And again, it gets to the concept that before we legalize pot in Delaware, we better slow down and take a look at what's happening out in these other States that have legalized from what I, uh, you know, as someone running for governor, I have to focus on winning the primary come right. September 15th. But, um, and then after that you get into some of the issues, but from what I've heard, the preliminary, that's what stopped the pot legalization in the state legislature. Huh. They found out they did not, we're not getting good reports back from these states. And and the reality is, it wasn't about legalizing pot. It was by, it was about 
the state making money, major money, taxing pot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where my mind goes. God, deficit, man. What else? What's another sin tax that we can throw out there <laughs> to make some money? You know? Right. And, and, and say it's, it's it, you know, it, it, 100 years ago, all these things that the state of Delaware is involved in were considered immoral. Right. You know, uh, gambling, immoral. 100 years ago, right. with the Methodist population we had here. And yet, that was probably the worst thing that was allowed to happen back in the 90s. And you know that the story on the, what, the gambling casinos was it was just to raise $5 million for the horse racing industry. That was it. Huh. Why do you say it's and, one of the worst things to happen? Well, if you talk to any of the, the, the pastors and the school principals and so on, what happens is, People get addicted to gambling, and, and some parents get addicted to gambling. And the money goes out the door. They don't have money to pay for for their children's clothes or or to have you know to pay the bills at home. And they've got families. Their children are suffering because their parents are addicted to gambling at the Delaware casinos. It's their story after story of. Of people, you know, businessmen and all get addicted to, to gambling at these casinos, and it, it destroys families. Huh? Yeah, I haven't. If I know anyone who's going through that, I don't know that they are going through that. So that's yeah, nice not something anyone brags about. Yeah, right. well, yeah. I had, I, had a, I had a family member whose um, whose mother was was gambling, and I had to, you know, I had to get with my sisters and and uh, pay to make sure he had clothes to go to school with. Wow. It's 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 the worst thing and and what's the revenue from the from the Delaware casino? It's what, two hundred million dollars, what three hundred million? Big part of our revenue stream. Yeah. Man, so and it's funny, I I know we're closing in on time here. When you had said that there are some more problems in Delaware, more so than the legalizing uh marijuana, was there something that we haven't spoken about you wanted to shed a little bit of light on? Well, we talked about corrections. We talked about the family court and the failure of the Delaware State Bar to obey the state constitution. And we touched on schools, which I'd like to revisit. I, I really would like to, and in one paragraph, say this. I would like to have a survey of the teachers and tell, have them tell me, what are these bureaucrats requiring you to do that you don't like to do? <laughs> and do you think someone else could be doing it for them, for you, so we can free you up to do what you're supposed to be doing, and that's teaching our children? It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting I if... Yeah, it, 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 it's, uh, you have to ask questions. Yeah, I, well, I'm almost wondering, like, if they actually had to list it out. Sometimes you can feel very overwhelmed by things and you can think some things are time constraints, but then when you almost take the emotion out of it and become logistical or logical about it, you can kind of step back and say, you know what, maybe it isn't that bad. And I'd be curious if they did list those things, those um, time drainers, those non-teaching requirements. I wonder if they, if that was put out there, would they think, wow, that is a lot more or would they be like, huh, I'm surprised it isn't as much as I thought. Yeah, well, you hear rumblings, and when you hear right? rumblings, you start asking questions. Yeah, you know, no, for it. sure. 
because your 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 teachers are your most valuable employees of the schools. They're the ones that do the work. And why would you burden them with things? And I I I talk about the concept of you can't have your head in two places at once. And, and for example, someone that's running a business, a small business or whatever, you know, like say for example, a tow truck business where they're doing twenty four seven and whatever the phone rings, they're off and doing it. They don't have the ability to sit down and do the bookkeeping for themselves. Right. They're, they're, you can't have your head in two places. And I think under that concept of not having your head in two places, can a teacher really be focused on? And we know a lot of teachers put in a lot of hours. It's not just, you know, doing school hours. You got great papers and do all those other things to, to, to your students. But if you have them doing all these other things, not related to teaching that the bureaucracy requires them to do, you got your head in two different places. Right. And I don't think, I don't think we're wired to do things like that. So we need to look at taking, taking the burden off these teachers. who want to teach and find out, is there another way we can meet the requirements of the federal money without engaged, having requiring our teachers to do that process? I'm curious now about two places at once. How do you feel about the hybrid model? Um, so I think I thought Red Clay just announced they're going full virtual. I know K Pen Lopen announced K five. It's an option. Full time, um, full time K five is an option, or at home is an option. Middle and high school, you're like a Monday Tuesday student. Wednesday is completely virtual, and then the Thursday Friday students come in. I'm wondering and curious about how you feel about education in a hybrid model like that? Well, there's an ill wind that blows no good. And we were already headed in the direction, you know, no textbooks, correct? Uh, yeah, basically like virtual textbooks. But yeah, gone. Right. Like, we're already headed in that direction. Yeah. And there's a very good possibility that some good can come out of this. Uh, they're, what they're doing is experimenting. Right. And we won't know again until... Like everything else, this is what they say they want to do. Are the results good or bad? We won't know. Yeah, I just and but again, but how you have you... to give you have to give this. You know, these are high; these are dedicated, highly educated people running our school districts, and they are they're you know they're dedicated to doing their job. I wouldn't want. I would. You don't want to micromanage people like our governor wants to do. Right. You know, like Democrats in general, they all want to micromanage everything. So I would I would say to these administrators, you know, do you believe that this could possibly work? And give them the freedom to try it. Yeah, that's a, a great point about I mean, the governor's not. The governor's not. There's never been a school teacher. I've never been a school teacher. I've had great school teachers. I've had great examples of school teachers, and the, you know they they affect us for the rest of our lives. When you think back, but you 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 give people, as you do in business, the responsibility and the authority to carry out their jobs. Yeah. Man, who is I and listening what's happened, to? It's what's happened, you know, with the, the, the Democrat model and our governor is we're, we're, we're giving you the responsibility, but we're not giving you the authority. And it's, it doesn't work. That's a 
great point. Um, I think it was Jocko Wilhelm. I was listening to Jocko Wilhelm and he was talking about leadership in the military and his, he was a Navy SEAL. And one of his philosophies was if his boots aren't going to be on the ground, he's not making, he's not making the plan. He's going to the guy whose boots are going to be on the person whose boots are going to be on the ground. Let them make the plan. Then they come to him with the plan and he's cool with it. Or he maybe tweaks a thing here or there. But what that does is the ownership and passion for the boot on the ground is completely in because they're the one having to execute, but they're also the one who created. So they're empowered and, and, they're, and they understand the vision because they created it. And now they can communicate it more easily to their troops where you have those other mission statements that aren't created by anyone who's executing them. The translation of the purpose behind it can get lost, the passion, the energy behind it can get lost. Maybe the buy-in isn't all the way there because they weren't involved. And I think the way you're talking is a great point. Like, man, if you guys are there on the day to day, I should probably listen to your opinions because you probably know more than me. (laughs) Yeah. And, and people have brains, right? (laughs) And and you want to engage their brains. It comes with the person you hired. And uh, my grievance, you know, I don't, I have the credential of being a CPA and I have real life experience running a big business and, you know, my work profession, uh, which was, you know, a dual, a dual career being a politician and ha- having a profession where I could make money to pay my bills is my grievance is what in the world are they teaching these MBAs? Because it seems to me these MBAs, first of all, seems to be all about these, the, the guys at the top of organizations having stock options and getting filthy rich, even though they're, they're not signed on the, the guarantees on the bank loans. And, and in addition to that, they seem to regard employees as not more important than that piece of furniture that they're sitting on, just as replaceable. And that's not true. When I was a, a key financial, when I was a key executive in a big company with 650 employees making building 20 houses a week on a 40-hour work week. We treated the employees respectfully and took care of their needs, and we had buy-in, and we did management by walking around. Even though we wore suits and ties, they called us by our first name, and, uh, and they wanted to perform because you respected them. Because you engage their brain. And if we had to make it, if there had to be a change in what was being done in one of the two plants, before you made the change, you went out to the plant floor. You know, you talked to the plant manager, maybe went to talk to the guy that um, was working on the floor. And and may I share a humorous story? We have time real quick. Oh, no, I've definitely got time. Yes, I definitely have time, sir. I'll leave you with a humorous story. Well, actually, hold on one second, because that'll be perfect. Um. And it's how I end the podcast. So just for consistency's sake, I'll um, you're going where you're going. You can keep the story, but I'll just throw the segment in there because I try to be consistent. Okay. Um, do you? And I should actually ask you, um, because I'll it may be a humorous, embarrassing moment. Do you know how the Getting to Know You podcasts end? No, no, no. Nobody does. Um, actually, one guest, one guest, guest twenty nine, shout out Kristen, was the only one who made it through the totality of a podcast and knew what was coming. So I end the podcast by asking guests to give me their best first for last. We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. 
waiting makes it worthwhile. Any okay. idea, any idea what that would be? Because a lot of people are like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm going, what? what? Going what? <laughs> exactly. I got to really rethink the wording. But basically what you are about to do is what I hope for, which is a best first experience that a guest has been on for the last thing that people will get to know about them. And, oh, okay. I, and I hope it's like a humorous personal narrative about the first time they whatever, you know? Um, All right. But it can throw well, a lot of people off. But I'd love to hear your story, and I'll make it the best verse for last. Okay. Well, it gets back to my concept that you need to, you know, you need to treat your your employees are your most valuable profession. Are most valuable. Your employees are your most valuable asset, and that applies whether you're running a plant with 650 employees or you're running the state of Delaware with all the merit employees, with all their talents and skills. But the story I like from when I was in private industry, and it ties into where you want to use people's brains, but it doesn't always work out well. The, <laughs> the business I had had made ranch homes for a number of years, and they expanded into making Cape Cod homes, which are a little bit different. You had to do a different um, roof structure, but they had a problem the following winter with the houses that they had sold and had and had built and sold. All of them were having problems with the pipes freezing in the outside wall going up to a bathroom. So the owner of the company went out there and looked and there wasn't any insulation around these pipes. Hmm. And it was a number of houses and they have records of where the houses were built. They were built either in plant number one or plant two. And they narrowed it down to every house that was missing the critical insulation to keep the pipes from freezing on the outside wall when those winter winds blew came out of one plant. So they went, the owner went back to the business and he went out to the plant and he went out to the section and talked to the guy that was in charge of putting the insulation, which is, you know, not a high skill. And he said, uh, it was the, the winter time. And he said, show me what you're doing with the insulation around these pipes. <laughs> and the guy did it perfectly, perfectly. All the right amount of insulation in the right place and everything. And the owner said, well, I was just out to a house that, you know, we, we built last summer and that came out of this plant and there's no insulation there. And the guy said, well, I know it was to keep the pipes from freezing, but when it got warm, I figured we didn't need it anymore. So I stopped putting it around the pipes. (laughs) And there's an example of, it's not always good when someone uses their brain, but (laughs) but I thought I liked that story. I liked this story. That golly day. And, and like, you, you you can't lose your mind on the poor guy. <laughs> or did no, he? Does, no, does the guy no, get no, fired? He was, he, he was honest. And uh, and uh, it gets back to a main point of an old friend of mine at the Smyrna Diner. He said, whenever mm-hmm. someone does something wrong and, and it doesn't turn out right, the first words out of their mouth are, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> That's awesome, Dave. 
<laughs> man, what what a bunch of history and um, just life experiences, man, that you're trying to bring to the office for governor. It's uh, I I, I had no idea. I, I'm amazed at the names and dates and history that you can just recall for Delaware. It's um, it seems super valuable to me. Well, people have commented on that, and uh, and I said it's just because I paid attention. I read the right. papers every day, you know, and you you gain uh, if you have an interest in politics and an interest in the state of Delaware, and that's why I'm an advocate. When you run for statewide office, you better be a, a native son or a native daughter the first time out. Not only because of the name recognition and all the connections, but I I truly feel that only a native son or a native Delaware sincerely cares about this state. Right. And for people wanting to find out more information about you, um, support, volunteer, donate, uh, where should they go? Well, as you know, I, I have a primary on September 15th. And I'm not the endorsed candidate because I'm, I'm the rebel. And uh, they fix races and they do throwaways. So I, I jumped into the race at the last minute, paid the filing fee. I don't believe in taking money from people until you have won the primary. Oh. So I have not at this point activated my website, even though it's all set to go. And the main purpose of a website is to, to collect money from, from people. Okay. That's the main purpose of it. Uh, and in addition, you have information about yourself. But mostly it's people, you refer them to the website, you can get money. But I do have a post office box where I accept checks. And uh, older people don't use websites. They write checks. And my post office box is 840 in Smyrna, Delaware. And it's Graham for Governor, LLC. And, and at this point, I, I have people call me. I, I They give me a check. But at this point... I, I've paid. I've always self-financed my campaigns. I've never re- relied on, uh, unlike some of these other filed candidates for governor that are sending out letters asking for money. Uh, you know, I paid the seven thousand dollar filing fee myself. I paid for my six hundred campaign signs myself, my business cards, all that. If I succeed in getting past the primary, and I'm the candidate for November third, then there's not going to be a you know, people, I'll get money. I'll get $30,000 from the state party, which uh, it reimburses to myself. But I think if you're if you're a serious candidate for governor or any statewide race, you should have some of your own skin in the game. And that's what I've done. And I've done it over the years with, um, with my attempts at being elected governor and running for office to get the name recognition. And, and I regard myself, I'm a, uh, I'm a political entrepreneur. <laughs> and that I thought it was it was a good idea for me to be governor of Delaware uh, because of my skill set, my ability, and my commitment to serving the – you know, there's a difference. There's two kinds of people running for governors, those who want to be governor and those that want to serve governor, serve mm-hmm. as governor. And I'm the one that wants to serve as governor. Man, I've never heard of a politician who didn't really want to take donations. <laughs> But it's a great point that what you're saying about the primary and whatnot. I mean, that, that's um, it's. I mean, it's you're speaking truths. 
Yeah, that's what I get accused of doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then I guess people would Facebook be the best way for people just to yeah, interact? Absolutely, Facebook, because if you look at my Facebook and I make all my posts uh, public, you know, and I run an interesting Facebook page. It's not all about politics, but if you look at my Facebook page, uh, one of one of the, the center photo has my address for sending the name and address for sending political contributions. And the other one has my business card, the face of the business card and which my, uh, my theme running for the primary is the qualified Republican candidate for governor of Delaware. I'm the only one that's, and I say this without hesitation. I'm the only one that has the skill set to be considered a viable candidate for governor. The rest of them are not governor material. It's and it's not um, throwing shade at anybody, but it's something in my head when so many people say, you know, I'm outside of the box. I'm a political outsider. But if you're going into the political system, you really. I would, like it's something I've always wondered. How can you operate a system that you don't really know how it operates? Yeah, there's, you know. So it's good to actually have some sort of knowledge of the inner workings of how politics to, work. You have to understand the business of politics, right? And you only learn the business of politics by doing it. And I've been involved in since for forty-four years with the political, you know, being a politician in Delaware, working behind the scenes writing letters to the editor, political commentaries, being on TV, working across the aisle on certain issues to get things done. So if you're going to be elected governor, you better arrive in that governor's seat with the knowledge of the other politicians you're going to be working for. Right. Dave Graham is somebody I can work with because he understands how to work with us. How many votes do you think the primary will come down to? From what I'm hearing, someone just showed me, a, a Democrat politician uh, just showed me uh, the stats last night. And I saw her, and, I sh- and there's a huge demand for ballots for the primary. This is going to be a primary unlike we've ever had before because you're talking about the future of the state of Delaware. Are you going to elect a qualified Republican governor you know, to uh, do a house cleaning on November, starting on January 20th? Or are you going to have, are you going to elect someone that's endorsed by the establishment? You know, there's a lot of bad actors that do not want me to be governor uh, because the game is, you know, the jig's up if I become governor. Man, and, that, uh, that's something that I, I got to remind myself of too. The whole absentee or mail-in ballots is, is almost like that's going to be the most used ever. It would almost have to be, right? Yeah, and I believe the standard for for a Republican primary is somewhere around fifteen twenty one thousand voters for the Very, whole state. Wow, for for a primary, you know, Jack Markell in two thousand eight only won the primary for governor by fourteen hundred votes. Wow. That would be seven hundred and one people could have voted the other way. Right. That's how how critical this primary is as as far as as the votes go, but. Um, the, the feedback I'm getting because I've been taking a public beating for 20 years you know, <laughs> the polls, that it was a good way to get name recognition. And, and even the Democrats go, uh, I can't believe how poorly the Republican Party 
and disrespectfully how the Republican Party has treated you all these years. And uh, and we don't have open primaries in Delaware. You have to be a Republican to vote in the primary yeah. for, for a Republican candidate. You have to be a Democrat to vote in a, in a primary. And, and, and frankly, if, if the Democrats could vote in the primary that I was on the ballot, I would have a much better chance of winning it. Because in Delaware, the city of Delaware, they vote for the person because there are no political parties. Yeah. Well, it's part of why I registered independent, and then I guess I've stayed that way, and I haven't been able to do any primary voting. <laughs> right, right. Well, you can't do any primary voting, but if you have someone you happen to like, you can always talk to your Republican friends. Right. <laughs> so true. So oh, man. True. Um, so just, like Demo- just like Democrats are talking to the Republican friends, saying – you, you, and this, this is. I'm dead serious with this. Democrat politicians are saying to the Republicans, "You make sure you do what you need to do to make sure Dave Graham is on the ballot November third, because we will vote for him." Wow. And there's an upstate downstate thing going on. Oh yeah. The downstate politicians are tired of these Newcastle County politicians running the state into the gutter. I, yeah, and I guess I don't even know how to follow it up because I'm always so interested. Because again, you just hear nothing but Wilmington. Wilmington decides the election. That's why Sussex County, Ken County, they don't matter. It's whatever Wilmington with the populace is going to do is going to decide it for the state. And that's a fallacy. Do you do you know what the population of Wilmington is? I maybe I maybe say a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand. No, the last count was like seventy nine thousand. Oh, that's there's not it? that many more people in Wellington than there is in the city of Dover. Dover's oh. what, 50,000? Okay. Okay. And and the whole population of Newcastle County is what, 600,000? Yeah, I Wilmington think you'd say that not, earlier. Wilmington is not the factor it used to be that, that it was 100 years ago when it, it compared with the population of all of, Sus- of all Newcastle County, Wilmington was a huge population center because the rest of Newcastle County was farms, right? You know, and small villages and towns. It wasn't a, a big population, and so it's not. You have to win Wilmington as much as you have to win Newcastle County. How many Republicans and, registered in Newcastle County? Do you know? You broke up there. I'm sorry. How many registered Republicans are in Newcastle County? If you know. Not enough. <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I've, I, I'm a native of Kent County. I live in the same house my parents built the year I was born. I was, I was home birthed in the town of Kent nearby. But Newcastle County is my adopted county. I went to Goldie Beacon College under the GI Bill in 1976. I, I worked for the top CPA firm. Gunnup and Company up on Concord Pike get to get my credential be a CPA for almost four years and audited it all around there. I've been in the Carvel office building for 15 years because I went in there in 2003, was running for governor within six months. They know why I'm there. But there's no better education for a governor with private industry experience than going into state government as a mid-level Merit employee 
and observing firsthand the lack of a bottom line mentality. And that and, helps you uh, with, does that help you with Newcastle County voters though? Well, because <laughs> people, I, I'm, I have high name recognition in yeah. Newcastle County because not only did I go to go to Beacon College where I was elected student governor president my second year, uh, and I've been I've been featured in their alumni letter early in my career. I was featured twice as one of their successful graduates. And in addition to that, I'm a life member of the American Legion. My post is the Richard Dupont post up in Claymont, Delaware. Uh, I'm in the Carville office building right on the eighth floor. A lot of people know me from there. And uh, and you know I, I know how mistreated and taken for granted the married employees are because I'm one of them. I know. Gotcha. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I have, you know, well, my cousin Donnie, he owned the, the, the Dairy Queens up there and his brother was a, a, a Methodist preacher up there. And, you know, my Masonic Lodge is in Newcastle and I'm a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, the Wilmington chapter. And, uh, I have the connection. I, I have the name recognition in Newcastle County, like none of the other candidates, that have filed have, and I've worked in three counties, lived in two of them because I lived in Newark for seven years when I first went to college and had my career up there. And uh, you know, I've I've lived, I've worked in two counties, no, worked in all three counties, lived in two of them, and have vacationed in the third. You have to have that connection in the city of Delaware, and you have to be have a reputation of of being a guy that treats people fairly. I think that's a great message to end on, Dave. Thank you, Dave, so much for um, rescheduling. Thank you so much for all the time you gave. Um, thank you just for all the knowledge you shared, man. The wisdom it was um, it was over it was overwhelming to me, and the depth of it was astonishing <laughs> to me. Thank you for sharing it, man. I so appreciate it. It was awesome getting to know you. Well, thank you, Sean. And remember my my motto: if I win by one vote, it's you. <laughs> I'll claim credit. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. Good luck. And um, September 15th, big day. School's open September 16th at Cape down here. So it'll be very interesting to see what that day brings for you. All right. Thank you, Sean. All right. Have a good one. Thanks to Dave Graham for coming on the Getting to Know You podcast, for giving so much of his time, sharing so much of Delaware's political history, and for telling some really interesting tales. Did not expect to get that kind of lesson in lectures. I guess lectures may be the wrong word, but it was, it's historical. The dude is a walking Wikipedia personified. <laughs> Remember, if you would like to get to know more about Dave, all you need to do is search him up on Facebook. You'll understand why his website is not available yet if you've listened to the pod and made it this far. Just go to Facebook and search Dave Graham. Remember, Delaware's primary is September 15th. Thanks to AndrePsyche.com for sponsoring the Getting to Know You pod. Take a moment right now. Go to AndrePsyche.com for some trippy merch that's going to be worth checking out. And if you have not done so already after our initial heartfelt plea, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Now for the word of the pod. The word of the pod? 
accountability. Accountability is the word of the pod. Post that word, accountability, in any of our social media or just tag the Getting to Know You pod when you use it on yours to get a shout out on our very next pod. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. And finally, dear friends and listeners, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we'd love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. All you need to do is message us. Remember, don't forget, whether it's September 15th or November, oh shit, second or third, I believe it's the third, (laughs) get out and vote.